Ciao. Ciao. Jalo Chow Chow Podcast has returned. What have I done to you? What do you want from me? We want you to listen. We want you to subscribe. And we want you to join our Facebook group. Do you know how to do those things? I don't know. I don't know anything. Well then, it seems we have no choice. <laughs> Ciao, ciao, everybody, and welcome to episode 92 of the Jallo Chow Chow podcast. I'm your host, Chris, and I run a little website called thejallowscore.com. And with me all the way from Italy is my good buddy, Al. How are you, sir? I'm pretty good, Chris. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. We are going to cover the 1964 proto, proto, proto Jallo death on the four poster um we'll get into the production credits in detail obviously uh a little bit later on but al correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like this film came out maybe a month or two before blood and black lace is that right or did i get those that those dates wrong well that makes sense because it wasn't until then that uh mighty obaba invented color so we're good to go <laughs> right <laughs> I mean, he certainly did. Well, I don't know if he invented color, but he reinvented it for he, Blood and Black Lace. That's he for sure. He reinvented the hell out of it for that. So, yeah, I think this is in, uh, significant because, um, you know, I think we always look at those first two Baba films as where Jalo kind of got started. And this film, um, it definitely, I, I think, should be in the list of films that contributed to the movement. I mean, obviously it is because it comes up in everybody's Jalo list, but I think the timing is pretty interesting considering that, you know, we really, the, the, the public at that point hadn't seen much and, you know, this film isn't particularly gory or extra hyper violent like blood and black laces, but it's still got that same kind of, um, vibe mystery vibe and it's it's also has a lot of more of the signatures that you would come to know from the 70s jolly um which i'll get into when we run through the score uh, but that's what we're going to take care of today 
uh, Death on the Four poster. Um, but before we get into that, guys, uh, let's see. I wanted to do a couple of things. The first thing I wanted to do really quickly is just tell you guys a story about, and you know, another one of these things where I may just cut out <laughs> some of the stuff. The, the last podcast that we put out, I think, had a, a talk time of like close to five hours, and I was able to cut some of the stuff out of there because, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that people are listening to us for three and a half to four. Um, yeah. And I try to dumb these down or not dumb them down. And I try to uh, cut these down to be reasonable. Um, you know, like if you're really interested in hanging out with us and talking to us for more than four or five hours, then just give us your name and we'll call you when we do, <laughs> you know, when we do the recording and you can just hang out. Or just put all the clip parts in a separate download and uh, let people yeah. access it. I was. But, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. I was thinking about doing that, like um, taking all the extra stuff that I cut out where we talked about, you know, um, gasoline prices. And yeah, yeah. Shit like that. And just putting it on like the, uh, oh, dare I say there's a money-making opportunity here. We'll put it on our Patreon version. Yeah, on the Patreon. <laughs> well, you know, as it is already... Our listeners are getting the most Jalo podcast content possible for their dollar, and yeah. they won't find a better deal anywhere than you got that right, Chacho. I noticed that the day after the Possessed episode came out, there was another Jalo podcast that did an episode on the Possessed. Did you? See oh, really? That? Yeah. No. It was. Uh, the whole episode was about half an hour, and I think maybe five minutes were spent talking about the film, and okay. maybe another 20 was spent talking about, remember the, the true crimes that happened in the town of Alege that I was telling you kind of inspired yeah, yep. the, the book that the film was based on? Uh, they talked about that a lot. Oh, so I think, you, are we talking about um, Jallo of the Month Club? I think that's what it's called. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So, and then they did one on the washing machine the month before that, and they did one on favorite films of 2022. Uh-huh. Uh, it looks like they get one once a month, and um, yeah, maybe I'll get in contact with them and see if they want to come on an episode, because, I mean, they're they're obviously doing this on a regular basis, and they're covering some of the same material that we are. Yeah. They also did a Dark Glasses episode, too, so... Hmm. Yeah, we could do some cross-pollination, I guess. Anyway, just real quick, the other night I was just randomly looking for stupid, goofy, uh, bad horror, um, to watch for fun. And I came across, uh, Umberto Lenzi's nightmare city, which, um, I've tried to watch at least four or five times. I always pick the wrong time of the night to start them. Uh, (laughs) my attempts because I end up falling asleep. But I remember there was an interview that they did. Somebody did an interview with Tarantino and he was talking about planet terror 
which was the Robert Rodriguez Robert Rodriguez's half of the um, whatever the hell that thing the Grindhouse the Grindhouse yeah yeah and they were interviewing him and he's like <laughs> we we came up with this idea for Planet Terror um, based on uh, Nightmare City which is also called I think City of the Walking Dead as opposed to City of the Living Dead, which is a Fulci film. Um, so I guess Tarantino was talking with the people that they were making the film, and he's like, yeah, I got this idea from watching that movie. And somebody said, oh, well, you know, I can get that over to Umberto Lenzi and let him know that you really liked this film. And so they sent Lenzi some sort of correspondence that said Tarantino was talking about you and said that he really liked your zombie film called uh, Nightmare City. And Lindsay said, it is not a zombie film. It is an affected people movie. And if you ever watch that video, <laughs> it's all, if you look it up, it's Tarantino talking about Lindsay on YouTube. Okay. It, Tarantino does this great like Italian exaggerated impression of Lindsay saying, an affected people movie. And apparently once they got word back from Lindsay that that's how he wanted his movie referred to as an affected people movie and not a zombie movie, then they just kept saying that on set constantly. <laughs> so anyway, uh, as that's all that aside, uh, I love it. I, it was it was really stupid. I mean, <laughs> there's no way around it. Like anybody watching it and doesn't understand, or it's not even understanding. It's people that watch it and they don't consider the bad aspects of the movie to be the entertaining aspects of the movie. Cause that's, I think what it is. If yeah. you don't think that stuff entertaining in some way, then you won't like the movie. But for those of us who think, you know, that scene in pieces where the tennis instructor comes running out of the bathroom and keeps screaming bastard, bastard over and over again, like somebody <laughs> who isn't into these movies would say, boy, she's a really bad actor. And people who are into these movies say, that's my favorite scene. You know, it's like, <laughs> so it's kind of crazy, but this movie is like that. Um, it, it's so funny though. I recommend everybody go watch it. Make sure you have a couple of cocktails before you watch it. This gigantic military plane lands in a hangar and it wasn't scheduled to land there. And so all the police and all the government and a couple of people from the press are running out to this plane to see, what is going on? And slowly the door opens and the people who come out start attacking everybody there like zombies, but yeah. they don't move slowly. It's like one of the first, you know, zombie films ever where the zombies moved quickly and, and ran after you and chased after you. So they're fast and, it, and they're not zombies. They're infected people. So basically this is the seed for 28 days later. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's what, and that's what uh, Tarantino says on that video too. He's yeah. like, you know, um, 28 days later uh, is the one that people think of when they think of running fast zombies. But this was the, this yeah. was kind of the precursor the influence, but, and, and you know, the, the makeup effects are really bad. Like some of the, it, it's really never determined in the movie. Like what is it that's causing them to, to be this way? What's infecting them. Right. And I don't remember if they even figure out how to solve the problem because the the film has this weird ending, um, which I won't spoil for anybody, but it's 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 kind of weird. But some of the people in the film, they've got these weird, like fleshy, crusty faces 
uh, they almost look like Muppets. And um, <laughs> I don't know what causes that to develop on the skin of these people. Because as soon as you, I guess, get some sort of an infection from somebody who attacks you, you turn into one as well. And so if you're a fresh, newly, freshly infected body, you look like you just looked a few minutes ago before you were attacked. But then there are these, there's other people who just have these weird, you know, fleshy, gross, corroded, rotting appliances on their faces that make them look like monsters. And uh, they look like they have fried bologna glued to their forehead or something. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So that was fun. The other one I watched totally on accident because I was like skipping around on Tubi, which is a has a plethora of free horror movies for people who don't know yet. Um, Sleepaway Camp, the original. Did you ever see that one, Al? I haven't gotten around to that one yet, but I've heard podcasts on it. So I kind of have spoiled it for myself. Okay. Gotcha. Um, I would definitely recommend it. It's not necessarily considered a giallo. um, Although maybe you could call it a giallo because really you don't know who the killer is until the very, very last minute. Yeah. Um, We might want to do that as an American giallo prototype. But anyway, I, I had watched Sleepaway Camp a zillion times when I was a teenager because it was available through VHS and it was notorious for its twist ending. And Mm. I made a copy of it. I must have watched it a thousand times. So I even know like the dialogue, but I haven't seen it in maybe 30 years. And I went and watched it the other night and it's really actually well done as far as its pacing, as far as um, production quality cinematography and that sort of thing. Like it, I don't think people paid close enough attention to it as a well uh, orchestrated film Mm -hmm. because, you know, it landed up in everybody's bucket as, you know, was a goofy horror slasher film. But, um, you know, I I had just watched nightmare city and I think sleepaway camp wasn't, you know, maybe five or six years after nightmare city came out. Nightmare city is like, um, as trashy as you can get as for a horror film. And when I made the switch over to sleep away camp, it was like, well, I'm, I feel like I'm watching something that's a few calibers higher when it comes to artistic, you know, merit. But I mean, you know, who's to say what artistic really is. So, uh, yeah, sleep away camp and nightmare city, two recommendations that if you've never seen them are worth a, worth a watch. Yeah, Nightmare City, I always kind of lump that together with another Italian film that I'm trying to remember the name of now. Oh, Contamination. Have you seen yes. that? Which is and, kind dude, of I, a... Uh, I do the exact same thing. I think of them both together. I don't know why. Well, maybe they came out around the same time and just kind of have the same general look. But Contamination, I think in some places it was titled Alien 2. Because it has oh, okay. little uh, seed pod things that the aliens jump out of. So yep, it's one of those classic uh, Italian ripoffs of something else. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I'll be talking about that a little bit later.
Uh, let's see. The other thing I wanted to share real quick, because I thought this was funny, is I was playing around on chat GPT the other day. And if you, you're, are you familiar with chat GPT, Al? I'm familiar. Well, I know what it is and I've heard some things about it, but I haven't interacted okay. with it at all personally. It's, it's the new way for, uh, kids in school to write papers without having to write papers. Yeah. That's basically what yeah. it is. Um, and of there was it really like funny 30 years after we come out of high school. I know exactly. It's a lot world. <laughs> But because, you know, this is a Jalo podcast, I, uh, the first couple of things I'm going to type in here have to do with Jalo. So the first one I typed in, which is the question that's constantly being asked on Jaloholics for some reason, is Suspiria a Jalo? Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is the chat GPT response. And I don't want to call it the definitive answer because it's just, you know, AI, but it says yes. Suspiria is often considered a giallo film. Giallo is an Italian film genre that is characterized by its use of mystery, thriller, and horror elements. The term giallo means yellow in Italian and refers to yellow covers of a series of pulp fiction novels popular in Italy in the mid-20th century that featured mystery and crime stories. Suspiria, second paragraph, Suspiria was directed by Italian filmmaker Dario Argento and released in 1977. The film features many of the classic giallo elements such as complex and suspenseful plot, stylized violence, vivid color, and a menacing musical score. The film's story revolves around an American ballet student who discovers that her dance academy is a front for a coven of witches. Last paragraph, overall, Suspiria is considered to be a classic example of the giallo genre, and it has been highly influential in the horror genre more, bro- in, in, in the horror genre more broadly. So mm. that is the official chat GPT response on that. And I just found it pretty kind of wild that it, it typed that out within half a second of me asking it. So well, maybe somebody had already asked it then. Yeah, that's true. It may have just stored its answer. Well, I was going to say, a couple of weeks ago, I discovered a new film podcast because I kind of burned through them pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's these two guys that are from Finland, and they they both speak English surprisingly well. But the one of the first episodes of theirs I listened to, they did two episodes in a row, one of the original Suspiria from whatever, 77 maybe. Right. And the the remake from 2018, I think. Yes. And one of the two hosts, what, part of their shtick is that they argue a lot. And it's kind of funny okay. because they both have accents. And one has a kind of interesting kind of voice, even without the accent. <laughs> so when these two guys are speaking in almost perfect English and they get mad and start arguing with each other, it's uh, I find it quite amusing. But one of them was adamant that Suspiria is a Jalo, and the other one was rightly, in my opinion, uh, trying to dissuade him from that. Fact. <laughs> uh, so you know, there are still people out there besides Chat GPT that that feel that way. <laughs> and right. you know, if somebody says it's a supernatural Jalo, okay, fine, I'll go that far, but. Uh, 
I guess a lot of us Jalo fans are just like really hardcore in our definitions of, well, you know, like the, the Jalo score stuff and the fact that Supernatural kind of puts it out of it a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that Chat GPT's response is the response that you would get from anyone who hadn't done a deep dive on Jalo film. Because when people think of Italian horror, Argento's name will come up as well as the word giallo. And once you have those two together and you start to sample some of the films that fall into that category, Suspiria is going to come up because it's probably the most famous uh, of, I would, I mean, this is arguable, obviously, but I think Suspiria is probably one of the most famous Italian uh, horror films. Right. And it's kind of like the the quintessential. If you have to watch any Italian horror film, it's going to be Suspiria. Um, now, as soon as you peel back the first layer, you realize how like there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more that you want to watch. But yeah, um, uh, well, I mean, I guess the question also has to do with semantics and the way we define a word that is used in common language in in Italy. So if if you know, obviously, we're not talking about the color yellow, but in in Italy, people who refer to a film as a giallo basically just mean it's a mystery. And so, if you showed, you know, the average Italian a copy of Suspiria, um, would they describe it as a giallo? Do you think? I don't know. Um. Maybe. I think a while back I saw an Italian TV channel. It was showing The Silence of the Lambs. And I think on the little uh, screen version of TV Guide that these you know satellite TV networks have nowadays, I think it was described as a giallo. And okay. from our point of view, I don't think any of us uh, giallo fans would consider Silence of the Lambs a giallo. I mean, it's a thriller. Right. Uh, there are people in the movie trying to solve a mystery, but the audience isn't trying to solve a mystery. We're just sitting back watching other people try to solve the mystery. We right. all know who uh, Buffalo Bill is. We see him uh, yes. abduct the senator's daughter and stuff like that. Yeah. So, I don't know. It... There are so many different levels to what people consider a giallo. I mean, like you said, here in Italy, anything that's a mystery is uh, a giallo. And because of what I saw with Silence of the Lambs, maybe it expands to even more than that. Because I always thought it was a mystery for the viewer or the audience. Right, right. Um, so maybe there are people that... I mean, it, people here in Italy that would consider Suspedia a giallo. Yeah. Uh, I knew guys in Tennessee that were not exactly foreign film fans of any kind. And when I started, well, when they started hearing about me trying to find these uh, Italian, like, for all they knew, because I wasn't going to explain giallo to them. I was just like, you know, they're like murder movies. Yeah. In the 70s and 80s. 
Um, a couple of them immediately shot out where they spit out Suspiria. Have you seen that? It's by Dario Argento. And I was like, Argento? Okay. <laughs> um, because I was more in the Sergio Martino and Lamberto Bava type stuff. Right. So, um, but they knew Suspiria. They probably wouldn't have been able to name another Italian film if you put it right. under there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there's that. Yeah. So. Very. It's, 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 it's one of these conversations that I guess, you know, it, it now only exists to continue the discussion just for fun, the purposes of fun, because obviously we know there's no definitive answer. It depends on who you are. It depends on your perspective. It depends on how you define the word or the term. But, you know, I think like you said, um, you know, the, the group of people who like us, who have kind of spent a lot of time watching the films that are, you know, there's no gray area of whether it's a giallo or not. You know, we know that there's a lot more to it mm -hmm. than Suspiria, but for people who have only just heard of it or, you know, hear it as a passing by phrase. And then you look up, you know, Give me examples of Jalo films, you know, from one particular article or another. Argento is going to be in the list, and Suspiria is going to be on the list. But um, anyway, it's uh, I'm not really sure what my point is, but uh, I thought that uh, maybe Chat GPT kind of gave me the answer that. Well, you know, again, the whole por the whole point of chat GPT right now is that people are using it to have it right for them. So I could I could write a blog post <laughs> on Suspiria and I could use the stuff that comes out of this and it would match most of what other people have written about Suspiria and Jalo. So right. that's probably why. I mean, I don't know how AI is supposed to work, but. Well, at the end of the day, I don't think it's that big of a deal because I don't think film fans are so ideologically rigid that they're going to say, I'm a Jalo fan and I'm not going to watch Suspiria because most Jalo fans or a lot of Jalo fans don't consider it a Jalo. So, yuck, get it away from me. <laughs> um, I was like that for a little bit, but a little bit differently when I... Uh, started listening to Chow Chow and started digging around uh, trying to find these movies and being here in Italy every now and then I could find them on DVD or Blu-ray at the local, you know, big media outlet store near the mall. I tried to limit myself to, well, Giallo is Italian. If it's not Italian, it's not a Giallo. And then I'd see right. things where people like, well, how about Dress to Kill? Ooh, I like that, but it's not a Giallo. Right. And, I'd heard about this Spanish Jalo called Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll that's supposed to be really good, and I avoided it for months. No, it's Spanish. Screw that. You know, those posers are trying to steal <laughs> Italian culture, whatever. But then I watched it, and that was how I discovered uh, the films of Paul Nashi, and I started uh, looking into him and found a podcast about him. And that opened the door to all of 70s Spanish horror and cinema well, right. horror cinema type stuff and it's I don't hate it and it, I'm 
And I guess what I'm trying to say is I don't think many Jalo fans would say that Suspiria sucks because it's not a Jalo. They would watch it, right. they would enjoy it and accept it for whatever it is. And it you know, like you said, it, it might be fun to uh debate it and split hairs and try to put everything in a little box, but it's all good at the end of the day. Ask it what is the best Jalo podcast? Uh I may use this as a as a write-up for our <laughs> podcast. Uh it says as an AI as an AI language model, I don't have personal feelings or and opinions, but I can provide some information about the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. Okay. The Jalo Chow Chow podcast focuses on Italian Jalo films, which are a subgenre of horror thriller movies from Italy. Uh, the podcast is hosted by an Italian film critic and a horror movie enthusiast who provide in-depth analysis and commentary on various Jalo films. Based on reviews from listeners and critics, the podcast has been generally well received. Many listeners have praised the host's knowledge of Jalo films and their ability to provide insightful commentary and analysis. The podcast has also been noted for its engaging and entertaining format, which combines humor and informative discussion. <laughs> wow. Overall, if you're a fan of Jalo films or interested in learning more about the subgenre, the Jalo Chow Chow podcast might be worth checking out. <laughs> might. All right. I could spend all day asking chat GPT <laughs> questions. So I'm going to stop now. Yeah, um, naval gazing with AI. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen we're ready to talk about the 1964 proto 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 giallo death on the four poster I just want to say real quick before we get into production credits that, uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the film is available on YouTube. And if you check the show notes for this episode, there's a link to the full movie on YouTube there. Um, but you can obviously search for it and find it as well. The version that is on YouTube is a four, three ratio. I don't know which version you took a look at, or if you looked at the YouTube one out, but Mine was cropped um, and, you know, and so it looked like there are parts of the frame that I couldn't see in certain shots. Yeah, mine was pretty cropped too. And I read somewhere that it was originally filmed in 166 to 1 aspect ratio. Okay. But that is not what I saw. And there are scenes where it looks like I'm supposed to be seeing more, but I just like the... Characters are standing on either side of a room, and I only see their shoulders. And yes, they, so at least they didn't do the pan and scan thing, but it does look like they just chopped off some of the edges. Yeah, I noticed the same thing, especially when um, a large group of them are together. 
or right. a couple of scenes where whatever you need to notice is on the right hand side or the left hand side of the frame and it's not there. You can't see it. So, right. okay. Al, give us some awesome info about this fantastic film. Okay, this film is a co-production between France and Italy. Uh, it was co-produced by Pasquale Tagliaferri, who had an affiliation with the Cinecita Film Studios in Rome. And the director, writer of this film, Jean, I want to say Josipovici, but uh, if he's French, I'm not sure how... The, the J would sound with an O behind it. Uh, and he's based in Paris. This film has alternative titles, uh, one of which at least I've already mentioned, and that is Delito allo specchio. That's the Italian title, and it means crime in the mirror. Mm. An alternate English title was Sexy Party, which, <laughs> uh, <laughs> good luck Googling that. Um, <laughs> and... There's a French title that I thought was kind of interesting, and it's Le Possédé du Démon, which is The Demon Possessed. And I don't know where the French got that title from, because there's <laughs> no demons and nobody's possessed, but okay. This film was shot in Rome. The exteriors are the Castello della Castelluccia. It is a... Uh, it's a, well, obviously very old castle that is right outside of central Rome, and it still exists. And from their website, it looks like a place where you could go and book weddings and... Oh, cool. Uh, it looks like they have a rather large dining room and rooms that you could rent out. Uh, it's probably way out of my price range, but... Uh, I think after wow. this epi comes out, I'll post something about it in the Facebook group in case anybody is rich and interested. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Jeez. The interiors were shot at Chinichita. And I did a side-by-side -side comparison of some of the interiors in the film with pictures of the interior of the castle on the website. And I'm pretty sure that it was nowhere inside the actual castle, the, yeah. the interiors that we see. Okay. On IMDb, this is listed as having two directors, but in reality, Jean Povici was the main director, and the man listed as the second director, Ambrogio Molteni, uh, was probably just an assistant director because he doesn't have any full director credits to his name. Jean Josipivici was born in 1914 in France, and he died in 1992 in Italy. He has five directing credits, including films with titles like Flesh and Desire and Pity for the Vamps. So it seems that Sexy Time was one of his themes that he kept uh, going back to, at least as an entry to the rest of the film, as we'll see in this one. He was also a writer of this film. He has 10 writing credits, including films called Woman of Evil, Passport for a Corpse, and a spaghetti western called Shoot Joe and Shoot Again. Uh, 
The assistant director, Ambrogio Molteni, there was no bio information available for him as far as birth and death, but his career spanned from 1960 to 1987 as an assistant director and a writer. He has eight assistant director credits, including The Night Evelyn Came Out of the Grave and Crazy Desires of a Murderer. So he went on to work on later Jolly after this. Cool. He has 32 writing credits, uh, including a film called Enter the Devil from 1974. And uh, that is one year after The Exorcist was released and Enter the Dragon was released. So earlier we were talking about the the tendency for Italian cinema to kind of rip off other things. Yes. Uh, it sounds in that one as ripping off the theme of The Exorcist in the title of Enter the Dragon. <laughs> and they did it just a year later. So right. let's put a pin in that. Uh, the other co-writer of this film was Giorgio Stegani, 1928 to 2020, born and died in Italy. 23 writing credits, including Mill of the Stone Women and Cannibal Holocaust. He has nine directing credits, including uh, a film with a tie to something that we've covered. He did a film called Golden Chameleon, which was like a crime heist thriller, which starred Mark Damon from Naked You Die. You might okay. remember him as Richard the Writing Teacher. Uh, so he was in that. The music was composed by Marcello de Martini, uh, 1932 to 1983. Uh, he, he was born and died in Rome. He has eight music composition credits, including films with Rosal Benetti and, again, Mark Damon from Naked You Die. Hmm. So uh, there's some more ties to Jolly that we all know. The cinematographer was Raffaele Masciocchi. I uh, couldn't find any bio information on him, but his career spanned from 1951 to 1967. He has 37 cinematography credits, including The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock with Barbara Steele. And in 1965, he shot a film called Gold Singer which was a spoof on the previous year's James <laughs> Bond film, Goldfinger. So, put that same pin back in that. <laughs> uh, okay, the cast. Like you said, there is a ridiculously long cast list. I didn't get details for every single one of them because I knew that this section was already probably going to go too far. <laughs> Um, the first, probably the biggest for an American audience name in the cast is John Drew Barrymore. And if you're thinking the name John Drew Barrymore sounds familiar, that's because he is the father of someone that we know simply as Drew Barrymore. He was born in 1932 in Los Angeles, and he died in 2004 in Los Angeles. He has 45 acting credits between 1950 and 1976. 
I think this is the only film of his that I'd seen and the only film of his that I'd heard of. So not too many Jalo ties beyond this. The part, he also plays uh, Anthony, which we'll be dealing with shortly. Uh, the part of Frankie, a lady named Gloria Miland. She was born in Italy, 1940. She died in 1989. She has 35 acting credits between 59 and 67. So in only eight years, she racked up 35 acting credits, including a film called Le Magnifique Sette, which is Italian for The Magnificent Seven. The twist is, these are seven females. So... This is a <laughs> spoof or slash ripoff of the previous year's Magnificent Seven, which stars Yul Brenner and six other assorted Hollywood tough guys. So that pen that I was sticking in and pulling back out, sticking back in. <laughs> Whether it's Goldfinger or The Exorcist or The Magnificent Seven, within one year, Italy will spit out a spoof or a ripoff that is better. That's how good Italian ripoffs are. <laughs> and that's why people 50 years later are listening to three-hour podcasts about it. So, uh, the part of Caterina was played by Luisa Rivelli. She was born in 1931 in Italy. As far as I can tell, she's still around. Uh, she has 63 acting credits between 51 and 74. Uh, she's done all types of Italian genre cinema, but nothing that I'd ever heard of her really related to Jolly. She did a lot of sword and sandals, uh, Euro spy, spaghetti western, stuff like that. The part of Serena was played by Antonella Lualdi, born 1931 in Lebanon. She has an Italian name, so I assume that when she was born, uh, her parents were maybe some kind of diplomats or business people in Lebanon at the time. And as far as I can tell, she's still alive. She has 63 acting credits between 51... No, sorry, I was looking at the wrong one. She has 109 acting credits between 49 and 2010. And again, wow. she did all types of uh, Italian film genres, but nothing that uh, really stuck out to me is noteworthy. The part of Ricky is played by Michel Lemoyne. He was born in 22, died in 2013 in France. He has 53 acting credits between 1947 and 1997. Uh, the only two things on his filmography that I had seen was a pair of films referred to as the Red Lips series. And those are by director Jess Franco. Mm. And the individual films are called Two Undercover Angels and Kiss Me Monster. And those films are kind of like a two-person Charlie's Angels type setup, where these two attractive women go around solving crimes. Huh. Uh, they're Spanish, and they're both worth watching. The part of Paul was played by an actor named Joe Atlanta, and I strongly suspect that that was a pseudonym. 
because even on his IMDb page, this is the only film that's listed. <laughs> what stuck out to me about Paul was that he looked almost exactly like Graham Chapman from Monty Python. Okay. And that was all I could think every time I saw him. There's no bio information available for him. And like I said, this is his only credit. The part of Nicky. Yeah, he was, he was an odd looking guy in this film. Definitely. Yeah. Did he look like Graham Chapman to you? Um, yeah, I kind of got a little bit of that, but that might've been the only thing because he had a very unique looking face, Yeah, um, but he definitely had some weird facial things going on during the movie. And uh-huh. I think he was like way taller than anybody else in the cast. So right. you could always see him when he was standing up, like he was just towering over everybody, but Joe Atlanta, <laughs> what a name. Joe Atlanta. Yeah. Joe Atlanta. Well, that just sounds like an Italian or a European's idea of an American name. Uh, I've never met anybody with the last name Atlanta. Well, I mean, in the U.S., you know, we have a tendency to use the word Joe as the first name for some stereotypical, um, what do you call, uh, stereotypical categorization so like joe college or joe yeah, cool yeah. so he's joe atlanta if if, if atlanta <laughs> had a stereotypical person that lived there he'd be it and he doesn't look like he's from atlanta so no he doesn't and like you're saying a few of the guys in this film have uh kind of interesting faces i would yeah. say And I noticed on some of the close-ups, it looks like they were wearing almost silent film era makeup Mm. and like, uh, like eyebrows were a little darkened up and eyeshadow. And so I noticed that too. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the part of Nikki was played by Maria Pia Conte. Uh, she has 49 acting credits between 54 and 78 and let me see what happened to her bio info uh okay yeah she was born in genoa so she's italian she was in umberto Lindsay's spasmo which uh some of us have seen and loved and she was also in one of my favorite Spanish horror films called The Hanging Woman. And the original title of that was Orgy of the Dead. So <laughs> if that piques your interest, I would highly recommend that. I'd watch uh, that just for the title. Jeez. Well, yeah, I made the mistake of mentioning that to somebody when I got a DVD of it in the mail. And because it was from Amazon in Spain, it was the Spanish version and i showed it to him and the the big cover was like a bunch of scary looking zombie type people and it's an orgy of the dead and that was the end of that conversation real quick (laughs) and uh, i was kind of chasing after him no no it's it's, it's just not you know so uh let's see who else is in this the part of kitty is played by jose grecci and I assume that Jose is her nickname for something like 
Josephina or Josephine. Uh, she was. Uh, let's see, it doesn't say where she. Well, all her career is based in Italy, so I assume she's Italian. Uh, or she was. She was born in 1940. She died in 2017. One of her first films was uh, she played the role of Mary uh, in the film Ben Hur, which was a huge. Uh, a huge blockbuster with yep. Charlton Heston. And she has a lot of uh, Euro spy and spaghetti western and even some... Oh, she was in the Sicilian Connection. So she did some uh, Polizieschi Italian crime films. And I think the other parts were just a little too small for me to really care too much about and sure. get into because they weren't people that I'd recognized from anywhere else or their filmography was pretty short and unnotable and that is all the production information i have all right excellent excellent detective work my friend thank you for that um yeah they're just the the only thing i could think of uh, a couple of things during the discussion of the production notes, obviously, um, John Barrymore uh, is not to be confused with John Drew Barrymore, I think is John is the father of John Drew, maybe. And Drew is the daughter of John Drew. So John is actually the grandfather. Is that right? Right. Yeah. This came up before when I was talking about Lionel Barrymore. Lionel Barrymore was the brother of John Barrymore. And the uncle of John Drew Barrymore. So, okay. so John and Lionel were brothers. John's son was John Drew. John Drew's daughter was Drew. So okay, got it. Now that we're all up on our Barrymore family <laughs> tree, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and what kind of a Jalo? podcast would this be if we you know didn't spend time on the Barrymore family tree you you would never expect those two things to come together but with this yeah. film they do so and I think we just spent more time talking about him than he's actually in this film so. yeah <laughs> and for sure for sure <laughs> um but all you know before we get into the film and this is certainly a, a discussion that we could probably expand upon uh, on another episode, but I think we've all come to know, I mean, in t when you were talking about, you know, the Italian um, imitation syndrome that's been going on in, during the time when, you know, Hollywood puts out a big hit and Italy makes a film just like it not too much later. Mm -hmm. If we look at the ones that are really the most important, or not important. If we look at the ones that are the most influential that spawned a lot of copycats, um, you know, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist, I think those two come to mind. Yeah. And obviously the one that we covered before, Les Diaboliques, which isn't a Hollywood film, it's a French film, but it was so connected with Hitchcock that it kind of gets lumped in to that category. I think a lot of Jalo and a lot of Italian films uh, 
take influence from that. But I'm trying to think of a few others. Like I know Vertigo, I think may may have spawned some copycats. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of some of the other ones. It would be an interesting discussion to come up with a list. I mean, obviously Psycho, you know, and we keep talking about Hitchcock over and over again, but um, as an influencer, but Psycho was certainly one. And I like the idea of... Uh, what was the one with the the seven in the title, but this time it was all girls instead of oh, magnificent seven? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm trying yeah, to think I'm of to see if I can to find of, that. Trying to think of some more that are you know, I mean, obviously you can start talking about spaghetti westerns and and you know how that got caught on, but I wonder like you know is there. Is is there a film in Italy based on uh, being rip, a rip off of Jaws or Close Encounters of the Third Kind or anything like that? I don't uh, know. There are yeah, there's several Jaws ripoffs. Um, there's one I think called The Last Shark. Oh, let me see here. Huh. I think Franco Nero was in two of them. To tell you how popular that subgenre was. Oh wow. <laughs> so. Uh, Jaws Italian La Ultimo Squalo. Yeah, that's the last shark. <laughs> oh, let's see, cracked.com did a list of four dumb Jaws ripoffs that somehow exist. Somehow. Italy, that's how. <laughs> You're welcome. Exactly. Mako the Jaws of Death. Um What else? Cruel Jaws. No, that came out in 95. I think the best ripoffs are closer to when the uh, the original came out. Uh, okay, there's a Japanese Jaws ripoff. Oh, Tintorera. That's one. No, that's a Mexican-British production. Wow. Okay. Well, it, I don't know. I guess I'd have to look at uh, Franco Nero's. I know he did two of them. They were very separate. But yeah, that's the thing. There's uh, there's a whole subgenre of Italian films called post apocalypse, which I find a little slightly more offensive than spaghetti western. But they're based <laughs> they're ripoffs of Road Warrior and especially Escape from New York. Okay, but and they're called post apocalypse movies. Yeah, post apocalypse. <laughs> I appreciate the language work there, but. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Have to watch some of those. Well, and of course, um, the sword and sandal movies came from Conan the Barbarian, I guess, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of those. When did that come out? And I know some of those aren't too bad either. Um, let's see. What else did they rip off? Actually, I guess I must be wrong about that because Conan the Barbarian came out in '82, and weren't there? Sword and Sandal movies back in the 70s. Well, there's Sword and Sandal, and then there's... Well, I would consider something like Conan the Barbarian. I would say fantasy, even though it's not as full of magic and stuff as, say, Lord of the Rings. Okay. Uh, When I think Sword and Sandals, I think like ancient Roman Empire type times. Right, right. People on horses and chariots. Spartacus. And gladiator and... battles and stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah, and and Spartacus is what sparked off the uh yeah, Spartacus started the sword and sandal or peplum subgenre. But then okay. you have stuff that is like um that's more medieval, like knights with uh you know, broadswords and uh castles and things like that, which huh. Is uh is not as far back in history as what I would imagine the uh, sword and sandal films are. Well, and you know I didn't know this because I'm googling as we speak here. But Spartacus is a Stanley Kubrick film. I yeah, I think that. that was his second film after. I did not know that. Wow. Uh, yeah, I think his first film was. Oh, I'm going to blank on the title of it, but it had Kirk Douglas. It was a war film. Opaz of Glory or something like that. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not really as familiar with Kubrick as I should be because I know that he's a great director. Um, Some of the newer ones of his I watched, I think I may go back as far as... um. Dr. Strangelove, that may be the earliest one I watched of his. Yeah, I'm seeing that. I'm, you know, I hear over and over again, like a lot of cinephiles do, how great Kubrick was. But for me, he's, that's about 50-50, whether I like his films or not. Yeah. I love The Shining. I I liked Strange Love enough. Right. And 2001, I thought was just boring. Okay. <laughs> and Clockwork Orange, I found, well, not really boring. I just kind of found it annoying. And okay. I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut. Full Metal Jacket was okay, but it didn't really blow my mind or anything. So. Yeah. I I enjoyed Eyes Wide Shut. I thought it was really well done, but I also liked um I also liked 2001. I saw 2001 projected on the to a planetarium screen. Um one one random Tuesday night in Philadelphia. It was pretty yeah. cool. Um, anyway, we're off the topic. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, let's put a pin in that as we say, and, um, okay. maybe next time I can see if I can find a few other ones that kind of come to mind. As far as this film goes, ladies and gentlemen, death on the four poster again. Um, the version that I watched is from YouTube. It is a four to three ratio cropped. As we said before, it falls into the category of what's known as a chamber film, which basically means that almost all of the movie's action transpires in one location. And there's lots of movies like this, obviously. Uh, we went through the cast um, when Al did the production credits. But it's, mm-hmm. I think, important before we go through the scenes... Uh, for me to list the characters in this. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to list the characters. I'm not going to give any spoilers yet as to what happens to each one of them. But 
my background with this movie before doing the deep dive preparation is I believe I, so I, I, this time was either my fourth or my third time on the film. And I'm not sure of the distinction, but when I first got the idea to revive the Jalo score website and to start doing the podcast again, I started doing a, I started focusing on proto Jalo. And obviously the first one that comes up in the list near blood and black lace is this one. So I think I watched this very early on just to get into the mood and see, you know, what was 1964 like for these kinds of films. So that was my first time through. And then I think my second and third time were to write an article about it for the Jalo score website. So this is my fourth one. And I can tell you that even on my fourth time through, <clears throat> I had to take notes to remember who everybody was. And, and thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and part of the problem is not only do you have many people whose names end with an E sound, Ricky, mm -hmm. Edie, Georgie, Charlie, Frankie, Nikki. Um, but you also have Frankie, who's a woman with a man's name and Lulu, who's a man with a woman's name. So right. um, we don't really, as a, as viewers of the film, we don't really get a full uh, snapshot of everyone until we get a little bit further into the film. It's not kind of established within the first couple of scenes, but um, as I went through watching it, I took more notes on each character. So we'll go through real quick um, before I go through the, the scenes here. So Ricky is at the top of my list because he's kind of the, the Lord and care. He's like the Lord of the manor. He, I guess he owns the place. Uh, where they're going for their weekend or he, you know, it, it's in his family. Yeah. And he's then we the have, host of the sexy party. He, he's the host. That's right. Of the sexy party. That's right. Um, and he couldn't be a worse host for that sort of party. <laughs> uh, Catherine is the caretaker who typically uh, is dressed like Mrs. Danvers from Rebecca, but um, mm -hmm. from, uh, time to time, she lets her hair down, literally, and yeah. uh, we see we see that a little later. Uh, Edie, who I describe as the nymph, um, she's diminutive, and they talk about when she first shows up about how her name in any language means idiot. Uh, so, <laughs> and she's the one in the movie who really is just there for the party. She just wants to try on clothes, even after people die. It's like, come on, let's have some fun. Um, yeah. She's like the horny dits. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, then we have Lucy Ann. Now, Lucy Ann can be picked out of the lineup because she wears these beehive. I mean, she wears these uh, really pointy glasses and she's kind of have like this beehive haircut. Um, yeah. But I also took notes on who they're coupled with. And that kind of changes throughout the movie. But in the beginning, I think she and Charlie um, right. are together. And mm -hmm. so if we go to Charlie, Charlie is the guy who kind of looks American to me. I know that his character is played by somebody who's Italian, but he's got kind of the hard boiled detective kind of look, which mm -hmm. I think is interesting. If, if, if that may just be me that I picked up on that, because later on in the movie, he ends up being kind of the one who's spearheading the amateur detective aspect or the role. Um, yeah. So I don't know why, maybe that made me think he looked American, but um, that's the only way I could describe him. He's got this kind of, uh, 
dapper, uh, nice black hair look. And he and Frankie, is it Frankie? No, he and uh, Lucianne are a couple. Yeah. Uh, then we have Georgie and we don't really notice Georgie until they get to the house, but he wears a glasses and he has this checkered uh, sports coat and he is with Frankie and Frankie is a woman. Um, she doesn't really have much to say in the film until a little bit later. Uh, we don't really notice her very much. At least I didn't. But are they a couple at the beginning of the film? Frankie or did they hook and up at the party in Georgie. They may have hooked up at the party. I just remember a scene with the two of them making out. And so, yeah, I just figured that they were together in some way. But okay. somebody else, I think, I think at some point Serena says that she likes Georgie too. Or yeah. I can't remember. Anyway, um, then we have Lulu, um, who I, th- what I think is a female name, but um, he's like the the nerd of the group. He's very timid. He's very f- frightened, um, and he doesn't necessarily have a female counterpart in the film. For Lulu, I think that might just be their friendly nickname for Luigi. Oh, okay. Does it actually say Luigi in in IMDb for his character, or is it say no, Lulu? No, it says Lulu, but just uh, like the way they call her Frankie. Yeah. On IMDb, her character is listed as Franca. Which, okay. You know, and that kind of confused me a little bit when I was going through trying to figure out because, like you said, a, a lot of these guys and even the girls look kind of similar. Some of the girls have almost the same hairstyle. Yeah. And it doesn't help that you don't get a whole lot of full face close-ups of them. And in the middle of the film, they change their clothes and then they change back. And it... <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's was, true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like my dad used to say, you can't tell the players without a scorecard. You know? And <laughs> so I had the film in one screen and... Well, in one window, in IMDb, in another, in my notes, in another, and by process of elimination, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out who is this one. What's her name? And right. So. <laughs> I did the exact same thing. In fact, I think I wrote down people's names because I heard them being, being, you know, mentioned in the dialogue, but I didn't know who they were talking about, and so I just wrote the name down. And then once it was obvious who that person was, then I filled in the details. But yeah. And the first time uh, when somebody said, hey, Lulu, oh, go ahead. and then uh, I'm waiting for, I'm thinking, who's Lulu? Who the hell's Lulu? And I'm looking at the women, and I think, oh, that woman there, that girl, she must be Lulu. But then somebody says, hey, Nikki, and then she turns around. I'm like, okay, so she's Nikki. Who the hell's Lulu? <laughs> yeah. And it wasn't until after I saw it that I looked on IMDb and saw that the part of Lulu is played by Italian guy name, Italian guy name. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, I wonder if they gave him that name because he's not really macho, you know. It seems to me like he's the most inexperienced uh, as far as dealing with women and stuff. And he might be a little bit younger, just more naive or had a sheltered upbringing compared to the others. Did you get that impression? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, then we have Paul and Kitty. They are a couple. Um, Paul is the degenerate gambler who can never say no to a bet. 
And Kitty has this kind of one piece sort of, what would you call that? A jumper? Um, Some sort of outfit. Yeah. And I don't know why, because the film's in black and white, but I pictured it as red. I don't, you know, (laughs) I have no (laughs) idea why. Um, You know, I was reading the production notes and I saw, I found an Italian website that had some of the production details, like the Cinecittà and the name of the castle that they used and all that. Right. And it said that this film was shot in Eastman Color Panavision. And I'm like, well, Eastman Color, I guess the color went west when they sent it to it. Exactly. (laughs) Well, I I don't know. I mean, maybe there's like lost information about this film. You know, obviously it would be nice to see like a a full frame copy of this. So yeah, I would like to see it full frame and high definition and color wouldn't hurt, but it'd be worth watching without it. Yeah. Color wouldn't hurt. Um, Okay. um, Last on the list, we have uh, Nikki. Uh, she seems to be the one who's always scared. She mentions at some point it's her first time that she's ever stayed out of the house overnight before. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's sort of kind of coupled up with Ricky a couple of times. I don't know if yeah. he likes her or she likes him. Uh, Serena, she comes in a little bit later. She's the party crasher. And her uh, date is Anthony, the most famous of the actors in the movie. Uh, the last one in my list and uh-huh. Anthony plays a very specific role in the movie <clears throat> and we'll get into that in a little bit. So that's okay. everybody that I have. Now there's also Aldo who is the caretaker. I didn't put him on the list. I don't know why, um, but he's kind of um, the looming caretaker who everybody thinks may be the suspect and the guy that's doing the bad stuff. Um, yeah, he's like that, the cousin of Lurch from the Adams family. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. He looks like that for sure. All right. So the film opens in a very interesting way. It pans over to the left. Uh, it's an outdoor shot. It's an outdoor cafe. And we slowly but surely uh, settle uh the camera on a group of people sitting at a table and you kind of, you don't really know exactly what they're talking about. And, you know, as far as the English dub goes, we don't really know how close to whatever the script was. It was, but um, it seems like we've kind of joined them in the middle of a discussion. And then all of a sudden they uh, say, Oh, look, here comes Edie. So I think at that point at the table, it's, Nikki and Charlie and Lucianne and Georgie are at the table. And um, then Edie joins the group and they're waiting for Ricky to arrive. So Ricky arrives in his own car and um, somebody describes him as the Baron of the castle. And uh, once he arrives, they decide, okay, it's time to, for us all to get in our cars and uh, head up to the uh, rendezvous. And I think at the very last second before they leave, a third car pulls up and it's Paul 
and uh, Kitty in the third car. So at that point, we have... Um, Oh, and I'm sorry, Lulu is at the table in the very beginning as well. So it's Charlie, Frankie, Nikki, Lulu, Georgie, and then uh, Edie shows up. Okay, there was one point where they were all sitting at the table before Ricky gets there that Charlie admits that he had to twist Ricky's arm to get this invitation to spend the weekend at the castle. Mm. And that's kind of a throwaway thing, but... It uh, it feeds into parts that happen later, I think. Okay. So it's, it's one of those things that stuck out on the second viewing for me. It's kind of laying the, the groundwork for the ending. Okay, yeah. So like the idea that this was really Charlie's idea to go up to the castle. Right. Yeah. Okay. So they because all get the a cart. lot of Jolly... A lot of jolly. The way they end the ending is just so preposterous, and uh, not just that it's unforeseeable, but that if you know the ending and you go back and watch the film again, there's nothing that would be any kind of clue towards that. So, right on a second or third, or you know whatever viewing later, it still seems like the ending was pulled out of their ass. And one thing I appreciate about this film is that there are seeds planted along the way that not in a way that you would be expected to notice them the first time. But if you're looking for them the second time, there are some hints along the way. Okay. Yeah. And you're probably looking for them on the second time because, you know, you're you're really hyper kind of focused on. What's what's going on that we're not seeing, and what are the characters right. doing that we're not seeing, and and is there any, is there any way that the film kind of hints at any of that stuff? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. So they leave on a little caravan and they drive towards the castle. They make some stops along the way and, um, they have some fun. Uh, this up tempo jazz music is playing in the background, and. It's it's a very cheerful, upbeat kind of introduction to the film. Everybody's enjoying themselves. The 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 um, the music is upbeat. They're having fun uh, playing kind of like a cat and mouse game with the cars. They get out and they pretend to throw one of the you know they 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 tease this one woman that she's going to get thrown into the lake. And I really don't understand why they all decided to get out of the car, uh, run over pretend to throw somebody in the lake and then all run back right, right after that. Like it was kind of silly. Well, but, there's uh, multiple times in this drive that they just pull over on the side of the road. And it looks like for what? I, and I think the answer is we need padding for the opening credits. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But it, and we, it seems and like we want uh, and they wanted everybody to get some screen time. Everybody was in the cast. So like, yeah, you know, if you are trying to push the story across and not just trying to pad the credit sequence, maybe you could say, you know, we're giving the audience a couple of opportunities to make mental notes of who people are. I mean, obviously we can't tie them to their names yet, but uh, at the very least we know who Edie is and, you know, the rest of them we can see as they do these things. What, what do they do after they go, they go around the circle a couple of times? Oh, they get out again. Yeah, 
do, do people did people always drive this ridiculous in Italy? No, they go this? around that circle like twice, don't they? Yeah. And we do have roundabouts here all over the place, but this is ridiculous. I mean, there's no other traffic on the road. Why? <laughs> And if Matt were on the cast, he would say a, they rented these cars and they had to make sure that they got them in most of the shots because they yeah and they're going to get as much out of them as they can because they they owe a favor to the guy who loaned them the cars for the film I guess um, okay anyway we don't need to pull apart the credit sequence that much <laughs> um, gee I wonder why their podcasts are so long yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So at the very end of the credit sequence, they uh, they eventually arrive at the castle. It's the castle that you mentioned. Um, and I have in my list, or in, I'm sorry, I have in my notes, that this reminds me of the castle in Libido. And when you were mentioning the name of the castle, which I've since cleared out of my search history, uh, I looked up that castle and I looked up libido and it is the same one. So I guess they use that exterior uh, a lot for these films uh, because it's so picturesque and, and, you know, yeah. Eye catching. And it's right outside Rome. So it's very convenient. Yeah, absolutely. So they all drive their cars into the garage. uh, (laughs) And the first ridiculous thing happens is that Ricky locks the door and tells uh, everybody that I'm going to leave the key right here, so don't lose it. <laughs> yeah, Chekhov's key. Yeah, it's just, I mean, if it's a key, uh, okay. I mean, obviously we're ask we, we we would ask the obvious questions of if if it's a key and you've locked the garage, but you're putting the key right next to where the lock is. Why lock the garage? So, you know, it's kind of silly, but we need to know about the key for later anyway. Or he um, could have just kept it in his pocket and set it down on a table inside the living room or sure. something. But, uh, okay. I agree. Um, so I, they all go into the castle and there's this, um, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but there's this like 360 pan around the surroundings. I think the camera focuses on uh, Frankie first and it pans all the way around and finally comes back uh, to focus on, I think uh, it, does it come back to Frankie again? No, it just comes back to more people, you know, walking in and eventually I guess we see Catherine who's waiting at the door and we also see uh, Ricky who's come in. And they all look very excited, you know. They've got their, mm-hmm. they got their couples, and they're 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 happy to be there. And they start immediately betting on um, things like, "I'll bet you ten dollars you don't have any champagne." And then Ricky says, "Sorry, uh, I've got plenty of it." You know, <laughs> just to drive the idea home that that uh, Paul is will, will bet on anything. To see, yeah, um, and bit badly. The guy lives in a damn castle. You think he doesn't have a bottle of champagne? Right, exactly. Especially if he offers you some. (laughs) Should I get some champagne? Hold on a minute. I bet you don't have any. Why would I offer it? (laughs) Ricky should have taken that ten dollar, ten thousand liter, whatever kind of bill it was, and just wiped his ass with it and handed it back to him. (laughs) Do I look like I need your ten dollars? 
Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we get a, we get a view of the castle interiors. The girls go upstairs to freshen up. The boys um, sit down and uh, get ready to relax. Um, and then we have the scene where uh, Catherine is alone in her room. And I guess she's just um, doing various things related to, you know, I, th- I think she's taking off her shawl or putting something on. She's acting very, you know, classic and quiet and demure. And then we see uh, this window, you know, this this the window door uh, that leads to the outside being opened and uh, a strange looking man coming through and stepping through the window door here. Um, but we don't see who it is just yet. And we cut away uh, and we move to another scene with um, Ricky and he's carrying the champagne bottle. And he says uh, something like no one should know about us and um, to indicate that they must have some sort of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So Ricky comes in. He's got the champagne. Um, they make a toast to the girls. And then let's see, um, they move. So like this part of the movie, they just, the girls are in one area of the house and the boys are in another and they just keep switching back and forth and having this kind of playful um, comparison of dialogue where the the boys or the, the men think that they have control over everything and the women think that they have control over everything. And it's, it's very lighthearted and funny and, and cute. And it's, I guess, to set the mood. Um, which will deteriorate as we get, as we move on through the the script. But I like really... the line there where uh, where they're saying like, "So let's program or let's make a program," which is uh, I think a, a translation error. It'd be more like a plan for for what they're going to do that night. Yeah. And Paul, of course, says, "I suggest a game of poker," and Georgie says, "You and your one track mind." We have girls here, and you think of poker. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's like uh, you have the wrong one track mind, Paul. <laughs> we have exactly. Girls here. Which, which one track <laughs> get on mind the, is more appropriate for tonight? Yeah, get on the right one track. <laughs> and uh, somewhere along the way, we find out that Lucy Ann's father has a castle. Because Charlie makes a comment about he likes this castle better than the other one because her dad's not around. Oh yeah, that's right. I, I totally um I totally skipped over that um in, in going through this the last time. And that's important um because he's basically giving you the information that you need to know later or that you find out later, which is that um Lucianne is rich. Right. And by indicating that she also has a castle, you know, that's kind of the right the way to do that without having to say it explicitly. Yeah, I, I, I it's not that I missed it, but I definitely didn't t- pay attention to it because I remember him saying about the father. Yeah. And there's a line in there that Paul says that I thought was kind of funny. Uh, he gives a hug to, who is it, Frankie? Is she the one that he's with? already lost my couple's chart oh, kitty <laughs> yeah okay so he gives kitty a hug i guess and he says uh 
they're looking at the castle and they're all impressed by how big and spacious it is. And he says, it would be a great place to bring the girls, eh, doll? And he kind of squeezes her and looks at her like, "Uh uh-huh. It would be a great place to bring the girls? They just brought like three carloads of people up here. And the place is crawling with girls. Yeah, which girls is he talking about? (laughs) It would be? It is. You are. What the hell are you talking about? (laughs) We're having trouble conjugating our verbs, I guess. But, Mm. yeah, that's... (laughs) It's funny. So the girls are still getting changed at this point, and Aldo starts spying on them. There's really, there is no nudity in this film, but there is a lot of kind of sexy moments because it is a sexy party after all. Yeah. So Aldo's peering through the keyhole. The girls are all ready to go. He runs backwards. And at this point, I'll, I'll bring up this hallway. The hallway will be used, you know, this is a hallway that we see in this film over and over again as people transition from, from one room to another. But I've seen this hallway in a bunch of films and I don't know if it's the exact hallway or if they just, you know, because you can take any room and decorate it to make it look like it's a hallway. Right. But I I swear it looks so familiar. Um, I want to say that it reminds me of the hallway in libido. I also want to say that it reminds me of the hallway in, um, how was that movie called? Cold blooded beast. Or Slaughter yeah. Hotel. Yeah. Um, but it may just be that this these are the props that they had at this movie production company that they used. Yeah, maybe for... Chinichita just has a bunch of the same stuff. Yeah. I went through a Hammer film phase, and a lot of those were shot in the same studio. And I noticed across, I think, most of the 60s, Different interior scenes, and they're always in somebody's mansion or palace because horror's not interesting if it's poor people getting slaughtered, right? Yeah. Um, I noticed that a lot of the, in the, like the ballrooms or the living rooms or dining rooms even, you would see the same spiral columns in the background. Okay. I'm like, so it's like they all shared the same furniture and they all shared the same living room decoration. So maybe that's what's happening here. Yeah. For the hallway. Yeah. You're probably right. Well, I know there's the classic example of this is the, um, the apartment that they use in the strange vice of Mrs. Ward with the stripes on the wall. Yeah. Is, is, is seen again in, um, the red queen kill seven times. It's the, the same. I mean, it's not really an apartment, but it's just a dressed up, decorated studio room. I hope that apartment's been sealed off and declared a national historical site. <laughs> I hope so too. <laughs> I would love to like if if they have a uh if they have one of those what the hell is it called verbo specialty houses that you can rent for <laughs> that would be, you know, I would definitely yeah. go there. You can go there that... and there's like a cardboard life-size stand up of Edwige Fenech standing there. That'd be Yeah, cool. cardboard wouldn't be good. Well, Inflatable. Uh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> so, moving on. Uh, the girls. Uh, yes, Aldo walks out of the way, and the girls leave the room. But I think um, is it Nikki who stays behind for a minute or two? And uh, as the girls go downstairs to join the boys, um, 
Nikki stays behind and she gets scared by Aldo. Mm-hmm. And she comes running down. There's a strange man. Catherine's there. Ricky's there. And then Aldo shows up. And, of course, Ricky laughs. He's like, oh, he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, and then he, I think he says, Ricky tells him to go do something. I forget what it is. I, I, I don't, I have the sound turned down. Um, but, uh, Catherine appears with a J and B bottle. Yay. A point for us and yeah. some sandwiches. And, uh, the group, uh, kind of huddles around this little entertainment cart to grab things to eat. Mm-hmm. And um, Charlie comes over to Lulu and says, you know, we've got to get stuff going here. Let's make a fire so that the girls will get hot and take their clothes off. Um, See, I don't that's... know if that was his intention, but I think that that I was. I think it was. <laughs> I don't know because that almost true. immediately you see the girls starting to open up their blouses and like, oh, it's so hot in here. <laughs> right. And I'm thinking to myself, damn, I never thought of that. Holy shit. Great idea. Um, the scenes earlier where the girls were in the powder room and the guys were kind of huddled in the living room. Yeah. I think we got some uh, good information there. We learned that Nikki likes Ricky. And that Kitty, even though she's there with Paul, she likes Georgie. And that okay. comes up later. And we find out that Edie plays the field. So that gets back to my ditzy, slutty type. And uh, Yes. She actually doesn't really hook up with anybody, I don't think. Uh, on the guy talk side, we find out that Georgie likes Frankie. Lulu likes Nikki. Ricky likes Lucy Ann. <laughs> Uh, and that's problematic because Lucy Ann is supposed to be with Charlie and oh and when it gets to Paul who's supposed to be with Kitty he thinks that sharing girlfriends is cool because he makes that comment about uh, oh somebody says oh you can't swap girlfriends we're not orientals or something offensive (laughs) like that (laughs) <laughs> and he says, well, I think that's one place you'll find the West, the East and the West agree, you know, like, yeah, sure, yeah. okay. So this is, so they're setting us up to think, oh yeah, this is called sexy party or, you know, depending on the poster that you saw it with. Uh, so this is supposed to be setting you up to think, oh, this is going to be like some swinging sixties sex flick. And right. Of course it's not, but. Well, um. I wonder, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to put yourself in the position of a moviegoer who only knows this movie as Sexy Party and goes to see it based on that title. And yeah, is that, you know, I wonder if they did that to to confuse and and um to deceive the the theater going audience into coming to see a a film with a bunch of like swinging teenager kids. And then it turns into a murder mystery. Yeah, um, that, that might have just been uh, you know, ticket bait to get people in, put some right. butts on seats, you know? Yeah. Like, why was Naked You Die called Naked You Die? I mean, there's really <laughs> right. no reason for that. Uh, but I'm sure it sold some tickets, you know? Uh, well, you can, I mean, basically they died when they were naked. It's just that we didn't see it, you know, yeah. as a, as a, 
It's a movie audience participation. Um, yeah. That's due for a remake. <laughs> I, yeah, I agree. Do it right. Well, um, but the, the interesting keys in that, I think, is that Kitty, even though she's supposed to be with Paul, she expresses an attraction to Georgie, which comes up later. And Paul seems, at least in theory, when he's, you know, doing his locker room talk with the guys, uh, gives the impression that he's not averse to sharing girlfriends. And that will come up shortly also. Right. So those are different seeds that I uh, I think they planted pretty deftly early on. Yeah. Ex- interesting points. Okay. So the fireplace so the, is lit. The girls yep, are the fireplace is lit. And uh, there's the makeout session starts, and um, all of a sudden, I think somebody says, or no, nobody says anything. Uh, Ricky is dancing with who? <laughs> Nikki is Ricky and Nikki are dancing. Ricky and Nikki, right? Okay, and then all of a sudden, Serena shows up, and she is extravagantly dressed with a fur, what looks like a cocktail dress and some very big shiny jewels around her neck. Um, She makes a very uh, elegant entrance. And it, I think what I got from the first interaction with Frankie is that Frankie invited her to this party. She's friends with Frankie, I guess. Did you get that? Frankie. Uh, so if you watch the scene, when she first comes in, Frankie says um, something like, Selena, Selena, Serena, Serena. you mm-hmm. made it. Um, okay, so yeah. You found, the, you found, and then she's like, yeah, it was really hard to find the place or whatever. Um. So oh okay, and that makes sense because the second time I saw this, I I wasn't quite sure how did Serena know to come to the party, and when she walks in, there are some people looking at each other. Well, especially Ricky, like oh shit, what is she doing here? Yeah, like is giving her the side eye. Yes, it's not obvious who Serena is connected to. It's clear that she's friends with Frankie because Frankie indicates that she invited her. But Ricky has eyes for her. Um, and Catherine, like you said, also has uh, weird gives her some weird looks. So, and the fact that it was Frankie that invited her ties into things we find out towards the end. Yeah, indirect way, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, again, you mentioned this earlier, but when you get to the end and you're trying to go through it after you've seen the end one time and you're trying to go through it a second time to see how the end gets like set up and how it how the actions resolve to get to the ending, it's sort of you know, confusing to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um well, Serena comes in, she says hello to everybody, and then she mentions that she brought uh, 
her date or her her escort her escort there you go that's the right word and it is um anthony and anthony is our good-looking john drew barrymore with um a lot of hair just a crazy (laughs) amount of hair and uh, he's got a very strange look to him but he's clearly you know the best looking one in the cast i guess like the most um the the most obvious to be you know i i don't know i mean i don't know how successful john drew barrymore was in the film world but it seems like he's just got this other air he's got this other quality about him that's a little bit more elevated than the rest of the cast and yeah or maybe they just make him look that way because they want him to, you know, because he's their big get for the movie, you know, yeah. they want to um, make sure that he, his screen time is, is well, well lit and, and uh, so on. Yeah. He probably got paid more than everybody else and did the least amount of work on this film. I would guess. And speaking of his hair, I kind of consider it the Donald Trump starter kit. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that style will look good if you actually do have hair. Um, yeah. But once you start to lose it, <laughs> if you still continue to, to yeah, do Yeah, the it only difference way. is, I think, uh, over the years, you'd have to lower the part on the left side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the way, he, it, the way it hangs down over his ears and it swoops across his forehead, I think that was uh, the look that a certain former president was going for. Yeah. Well, has been going for for quite a while. Yeah. He's never really changed his hairstyle since the nineties. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, so maybe he saw this movie. Thought, <laughs> I want to be like him. <laughs> Absolutely, it has to have been that way. Um. So, uh, let's see, Selena. I keep saying Selena. There's a. I get that name confused because there's somebody in, in, in my daughter's school named Selena. So Serena, okay. is it, it's not Serena, it's Serena. That's how you pronounce it, right? Serena. Yeah. Um, she, she says something about, oh, um, uh, Anthony, you've got this, get, get this record. Bring, did you bring your record and let's put it on now? I don't know if, uh, Anthony is in the band or if he just brought a record because he likes it and it it has nothing to do specifically with him. It's just like, Hey, I just travel with a random record and it's, you know, it's like as soon as he mentioned, well, apparently she doesn't care for the harpsichord music that DJ Ricky put on (laughs) and, so she turns to Anthony. She's like, oh, how about that record? And it's like she doesn't even finish the sentence. His hand comes up and he's holding the seven inch. <laughs> he's got it. Yep. <laughs> like when he carries that shit in your pocket. And it's not even in the sleeve. And my son has recently discovered the joys of vinyl. Yeah. Cleaning it and maintaining it and everything. And I just thought, no, oh, I better not show him this movie because that would be the scariest scene in the whole flick. <laughs> right. Him. Yeah, this is true. But back then, people didn't give a shit about the quality 
of their vinyl. Stack them in drawers. And yeah. Just, you know, Did you ever have one of those record players where, um, like you would you would stack like six or seven records at the top mm-hmm. of the turntable, and then one would drop, and then it would play it, and then after it was over, the the needle and the arm would come back, and the second one would drop, and then it would go back. It was almost like autoplay. The one we had, I think the most you could do was, well, I don't know. I never tried to see how many I could stack up there, but I do know that there was some double album I had where sides one and two were on separate discs, and then three and four were on separate discs so that you could do that. Yeah, so the, the, um, the first piece of vinyl would be sides side one, one and four. And then the second one would drop and it would be side two. And then yep. you flip both of those and you yes. could hear side three and four at the same time. Yep. Uh, I think I have a Stevie Wonder album like that. Yeah. I think that's the one. Yeah, that's kind of cool. <laughs> so Anthony Anthony produces this uh, this this record and uh, Serena is like, come on, this is the greatest thing. They go and put it over onto the um, the record player. The boys uh, move the furniture out of the way. <laughs> uh, Serena in, took in the s- tune. Did you catch the title of the tune? Oh yeah, it's the 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 song is "Sexy Party," right? "Sexy Party," yeah. "Sexy Party" now, is the name of the this song. This got me thinking. Okay, this is "Sexy Party," right? It's a single. It's like four minutes long, right? Why would you bring a four-minute song called Sexy Party to a sexy party? There should be like a 12-inch orgy mix somewhere that you could put on. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, like, the thing that, you know, I wasn't alive in 64, but the thing that I remember about being a kid in the early 70s was that the 45 would come out and they were playing it on the radio and then you went to the music store and or the record store and you got that 45 and oh, you would just listen to that like over and over again. Cause it was your favorite new record. And I think yeah, that I've done that myself. I think that's what this is all about. It's like, but I still don't know if Anthony has something to do with the creation or the production of this song or this record. Or if he, like I said, he just found it in a record store. It's like the new hot thing. And he just carries it wherever he goes in the pocket of his tuxedo to to play at random, yeah. you know, parties <laughs> he loves at castles. It so much. <laughs> yeah, he probably has a trunk load of them. <laughs> There's a scene where once uh, the music starts, you see him drumming along on the fireplace or something. So yeah, no, he yeah he comes out and he starts. Like they put the they put the song on. Oh, he starts clapping his yeah. hands with the beat or something. <laughs> yeah. Serena takes her shoes off and gets into that pose, and then he starts with this clap clap, yeah. clap, 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 clap. He's doing some sort of compound meter clapping. Yeah. <laughs> and she starts dancing, and I, the song reminds me of. I I don't know. Like it doesn't it doesn't sound like a sexy party music. The music no, is is no. more like. A cross between, you know, the uh, the ten o'clock nightly news intro and like a a western where you picture like people riding in covered wagons across the desert. That's the, <laughs> that's what the music sounded like to me, and not this sexy party. But it's got this beat to it, and you know, it's like that's probably mm-hmm. the most important part. So, 
as the dance party gets started, Catherine is sitting with the you know the daggers. Um, oh yeah, shooting daggers she can't at the group. Stand this bitch. No, and, I, and she and Ricky really have why. some ex, some weird exchanges. Well, not verbal exchanges, but just they give each other weird looks, like there's something, some kind of history or something between them. And sometimes Ricky looks like an alien. He does. He has the weirdest face. <laughs> I thought he looked familiar and. Uh, found out somewhere. Let's see, where was he? Oh yeah, those two Jess Franco films, the the Red Lips Undercover Angels type things. I'd seen him in that apparently, but when I saw his face, I, I was just like, this guy looks weird. Yeah, but, yeah, he's odd looking, but also his, Paul is odd looking. So yeah, they're all odd looking. And Ricky's hair did did that strike you weird at all um because his hair is kind of wavy on the top and sides but in the back is perfectly straight and i keep thinking that guy has a perm or yeah yeah that's interesting <laughs> I mean, if it was wavy everywhere i wouldn't think about it but there are times when you see him in profile and the back of his hair is just perfectly straight. Yeah, and I yeah he think, probably got yeah, something done. He's been playing with a curling iron. <laughs> I think so. So the dance so continues, then, and and uh, the group. Uh, it looks like Serena has a little bit of a dance step that she starts to teach the rest of the women, um, and they seem to learn it all very quickly. And then the men kind of try to also imitate what's going on Mm -hmm. it doesn't look like that difficult of a dance step but it also doesn't look like something that you could have just learned within two seconds so they obviously rehearsed this for the film but after the dance is over uh serena collapses on the couch she's all smiles and then we see Catherine. And Aldo, who's staring, and she's like, "Get the hell out of here, Aldo!" And he's got his pants up to his his uh, his shoulders. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's uh, odd because every guy in the room is staring at the women dancing. <laughs> and poor Aldo, he's well, like, "No, oh, my yeah. one chance to not have to peek through a window blind or some shit like that." <laughs> and Katarina just busts his balls right out the door. Yep, but. I did notice at the beginning of the dance when it was just Serena <clears throat> dancing, they showed all the different guys watching her, just you know, Google-eyed and uh, right, right. Except for Charlie, Charlie just had like this very serious kind of stern, almost scowl on his face. Yeah, and you know, I have that in my notes too. There's another scene even before the dancing starts um as soon as anthony shows up as the uh as the escort charlie has these weird looks um where Mm -hmm. it looks like he might be jealous or something or just not happy that she's there and he isn't obviously so um So after the song, the next thing that Serena says is, I would like to play a game, and it's called A Shattering of Illusions. And this is a party game where um, 
Serena describes it as shattering the illusion of what you think is important to you in your life. And so they go through two iterations of this. The first one is Charlie. Um, he says, okay, I'll play. And he says, you know, obviously, uh, was it Kitty, Frankie, Nikki, Lulu? Which one is he with? I can't remember. <laughs> Charlie is with Lucy Ann. Charlie is with Lucy Ann. So Lucy Ann is described as the thing that he likes the most or that, you know, is most important to him. And Serena says, well, let me see if I can change that for you. And she says, I just need 30 seconds. So she sits him down on a chair and she sort of does this little seduction thing and um, you know, puts her hand on him and she gets closer and closer. And I guess at some point she whispers something into his ear, which I don't think we ever find out what it is. No, but I have a pretty good guess, I think. And I don't really understand how they're going to judge this unless they're going to do a boner check or something. <laughs> <laughs> or right. unless he just starts uh, aggressively making out with her. You know, I mean, she could like kiss all over him. And if he's just sitting there stone cold and uh, not reacting physically in any visible way, how can they tell if he won or if he lost? Right. But based on where this ends up going, I think she, uh, who was it? Was it Georgie or no, I think it was Lulu who came up and said, Oh, I, I would have kissed her and she wouldn't even had to bribe me. I don't think she bribed him. I think she threatened him because they're all sitting there in front of all of his friends. And most importantly, his, uh, rich daddy has a castle girlfriend. Right. Right. And I think she's like, you better, um, you better let me win or I'll just blab some shit right here and now. Because as soon as she whispers that he kind of caves pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he gets a completely different look on his face, but I mean, again, your question of how do you judge the winner of this is like, <laughs> if he, if he just grabbed her and pushed her off the chair and said, get the fuck away from me, then Maybe he would have won. I don't know. But the boner check yeah. probably is the best way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe in 64 you couldn't have a boner check in your proto-Jalo movie. <laughs> it wouldn't be until the 70s they could do something like that. <laughs> Once Edwidge was started to be in all the films, then the boner check was... I'm going to add yeah. that to the signatures. Well, they wouldn't have had to show it, but they'd at least address it. Yeah. Know. There'd be a shot of her reaching down and be like, oh, so apparently <laughs> I won. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> well, Serena decides that one game of a shattering of illusions is not enough. So she decides to start a second one with Paul, who can't really decide if... The thing that he values most in life is his, um, is, uh, what the hell's her name? Kitty or Kitty. playing dice. So, 
they go over and, you know, again, I don't know what you think about this. Some of this seems to be time filler. Um, I know we're trying to establish characters and I know we're trying to um, really get everybody thinking like, well, who could have done this as we, once we get to the murder. But um, it seemed to go on a little bit too long. And, uh, you know, it was a little bit of annoying to watch the two of them do this dice thing. I think it's partly because Paul reminds me of somebody that I work with that I don't like. Hmm. <laughs> Every time somebody he talks. Somebody with a gambling problem? No, it's not even a gambling problem. and or not just even physically? Not even, like yeah, somebody. it's weird. It, huh. <laughs> it's very weird. So they continue to do double or nothing on the dice game. Um, Paul's luck is terrible. He can't win a single roll. And eventually he owes Serena a whole bunch of money. Anthony comes over just to sit and do his eyebrows and his Hollywood <laughs> smile for one more scene. But then mm-hmm. I think they, after he loses everything, he says, okay, I'm going to risk it all again, but I'm also going to risk. I don't know what it was. Um, Kitty can go over with Anthony and do the same thing that I guess Serena did to Charlie. Well, I think that was Serena's idea, wasn't it? And he just, he's, he doesn't care. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Because he's Mr. East meets West. Nobody cares about sharing <laughs> partners. And to his credit, it doesn't really look like he's too bothered by the whole thing. Because I think he's more interested in the gambling. Yeah. His relationship. Right. He doesn't care. Yeah. So he loses again and uh Anthony does his little seduction act on uh Lucianne. Is that her name? <laughs> I'm gonna keep asking that same question. Is that her name? No, uh, this one's Kitty. This is this is Kitty, right? <laughs> yeah. Kitty in the jumpsuit. Kitty in the jumpsuit. So after uh, Anthony does his little seduction. They do another dice game, but this time the stakes are that uh, Kitty gets Georgie in a private room for 10 whole minutes. And um, uh-huh. didn't you say that uh, when the girls were upstairs that Kitty said she thinks Georgie is cute or something like that? Yeah, she says something like, I'm faithful to Paul, quote unquote, but I... I don't remember exactly the way she worded it, but she did express, uh, even though I'm with Paul, I wouldn't mind uh, Georgie. So apparently everybody that went there was thinking it's just going to be a wild throwdown. Yes. You know, a big pile in the living room. And I think it's funny that when, uh, when Paul loses... Georgie says, well, I don't, we don't have to do this. Like he tries to, to back out of it because it's not really his bet. And he was just kind of volunteered for it. So he tries to get out of it and Kitty immediately squashes that. She's like, oh no, 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 no. This is fine. We're going. (laughs) Yeah. We have to honor our debts or something like that. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Kitty, uh, escorts Georgie into a private room. And let's see. 
I don't have any notes about what the two of them talked about, so I don't I don't know what they're what the significance of this scene is where they're alone together, but I don't does when it they push go the plot in there, forward at all? I don't know. Well, not really, but I think this might be the only time anybody does anything sexual during this film. He goes in there and he's kind of like, well, okay, so what's this? What are we, you know, are, are we for real? Is this serious? What do you, you know, what are you willing to do? And she says, oh, I'll do anything you want me to do. And he immediately pours a drink <laughs> and takes a shot. Yeah. And he says, well, what are the limits? Well, whatever. And he says, well, what if I told you to take off my clothes? And she says, well, I would tell you to take off my clothes. And then she turns around because she can't, you know unzip the back of her jumper or whatever. right and he does that and then you know, as he's unzipping her jumper or jumps whatever the hell it's called we go back outside but then the next time that we see them they're coming into i guess their 10 minutes are up but they the the focus has already moved on to something else yes Yes. And Georgie's necktie is obviously loosened. The top couple buttons on his shirt are open. So I think something happened. Something went down. Another boner check. I think so. <laughs> well, and they did, did this interesting thing where, you know, he unzips the back of her dress and they transition to another bare back, but it's Serena coming into the frame for the next scene. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was kind of cool. I found that, I thought that was interesting. So the Anthony and uh, Ricky are talking, the girls are there and now they're talking about um, Anthony's other thing that he's good at, which is some sort of an experiment, which is what they refer to it as in English. And I, I think they're talking about some sort of psychic ability or black magic or something like that. And, Frankie gives Anthony um, a compact to do some sort of spiritual analysis on. And he says something about it. You know, the person who owned this has died. And I forget what exactly what he says, but it turns out that it belonged to Frankie's mother and she was in a plane crash. And so, I guess they're establishing here now that Anthony has some sort of ability to, to tell the future or to be psychic. And in order to one up that after that happens, they decide that they're all going to sit down at this table and Anthony is going to, I don't know exactly what they expected was going to happen. Like what we end up getting from Anthony and then what I thought they were going to be doing are a little bit different. Like at first it kind of seems like it's a seance, but they don't really contact anybody who's dead. He just kind of goes into a trance with the candle in front of his face. Mm -hmm. And Paul is sitting with the tape recorder. So we have a copy of this, you know, an audio copy of this documented and all the lights are out. And I think they're all holding hands and whatnot. Um, And, Anthony says, you men, it's bad. Everything's bad. You will see your images above yourselves. The women will change their appearances. They will go back in time. Music. I hear music. It's terrible. Help, help. And then he screams lights. 
and the lights come back on. <clears throat> and immediately after this, Anthony decides that, uh, at least for him, this was no bullshit. Um, this was a real psychic event because you kind of, you know, if you've watched a number of movies, you remember that sometimes people do these sorts of psychic episodes where everybody's kind of in on the gag or some people are in on the gag, but it really is just a gag. But in this case, I really think that they were trying to relay to the fact that Anthony had this vision and mm -hmm. this, this automatic response of the vision was to be this prophecy and <clears throat> he wants to leave. He grabs uh, Serena by the arm and um, he's, you know, he tells everybody, look, we should all leave. No one should stay here. And he grabs Serena by the arm, but she says, you know, I'm going to stay. And Ricky says, no, you know, we just got the party started. And I think Serena says, I have reasons for staying. I think she says that. Um, yeah. Which we find out later, I guess. So Anthony, um, Anthony splits and we don't see him again. He, he walks very slowly out of the room with his hand on his chin. And I think he says something to them right before he leaves, before the next reel comes in for the film. And then he, mm -hmm. he walks out. I don't remember what he says, but uh, that is, I would say, if you had to put an end to the first act, that would probably be it of this film. Um, now here's something interesting. And I don't know if you noticed this or if it was just in the YouTube copy, but when Anthony is talking, yeah, it was just in the YouTube copy. I heard music in the background of the YouTube copy. And I actually mm. thought it might've been coming from some speaker somewhere in my house. So I kept pausing it and the music would stop. So I'm like, Oh, it must be in the, it must be in the YouTube. <laughs> um, but it's not in the other copy that I have. Now the interesting well, thing strange. about the copy that I have of this film is I think the one on YouTube, <clears throat> uh, has, less contrast it's a little bit softer of an exposure and the one that i have uh that i got that i downloaded from um the internet it's got a little bit more contrast to it and a little bit more detailed and it's hard to decide which version is better to watch as far as detail is concerned because i think they just they may have just bumped up the contrast because sometimes when you have uh, low low grade quality visuals. If you dump, bump the contrast up, it makes it easier to see the details. But at any rate, I digress. Huh. So we begin. Yeah, I thought I was this, going to watch oh, the I'm YouTube. Sorry. I thought I was going to watch the YouTube version, but then I found one that I could download. But it came as TS files, and there were three different ones, and I couldn't figure out how to put them all together. So I oh, just converted okay. them to MP4 and watched them in three separate chunks. Oh, okay. I forget what TS files are. I forget. Um, I think it's like a direct DVD rip or something. Yeah, I think you're right. 
So. All right. So the next scene, we get a little more uh, details on Catherine and um, mm-hmm. what she seems to be hiding under this conservative outfit. Um, <laughs> she's in her, she's in her chamber. She's got a record playing, and uh-huh. she's uh, taking off her dress. She's got this nice frilly, what probably is a black um, bustier on. She's quite beautiful. Um, she goes over to the window, she's putting makeup on, she takes her hair out and eventually Ricky shows up and I think he shows up to say, Hey, I can't bang you tonight because I've got people here. I think that's what he says. I mean, not literally, but well, that makes me wonder why she was expecting anything. I mean, you know, you have a room, a house full of people. Her castle full of people. Well, maybe she was yeah. just hoping that he'd, you know, take a little break and pay her a visit. Well, she should have put on her best party dress and just walked down there and said, Hey, I'm off the clock. Get your own fucking drinks and start dancing. Yeah, you put know? the sexy party music back on. Tell Aldo to come down, bring his party gear. <laughs> <laughs> his his dress pants that he pulls up to his armpits. Yeah. Poor Aldo. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, perhaps um, Catherine makes some sort of crack about how Serena is here. And so that's really the flavor of the, of the night instead of, of, instead of her. And he says, mm-hmm. um, I'm not interested in her in that way. And she says, prove it. So she leads him over to the bed and he uh, very slowly takes off her, stockings and then um <laughs> throws them in her face <laughs> for some reason um i mean what <laughs> i don't get it like he's trying to was he did he make it did he did he change his mind at the last minute or was he doing all this just to <laughs> i'm watching it again <laughs> He cuts to her face. She's all like staring up at the ceiling and smiling. So she's blissed out. And then just out of nowhere, whap. Whap, right in the face. It's like, was that the plan the whole time when she led him over there? and Or did he just kind of change his mind at the last minute and throw the, you know, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I don't know. But it's like the only time that he shows any kind of, uh, uh, assertiveness in the film. Yeah. Cause he kind of caves to the whole group of people coming over to the house. And then Serena crashes the party. Enough people are looking at each other that they know this is an uncomfortable situation for some reason, for some people. And he ends up letting Serena kind of take over the whole party. She's calling the shots. She does the dance. She decides a game to play. And, uh, you know, it seems like Serena doesn't care, or Serena doesn't care that she's causing awkwardness between the owner of the home, Ricky, and, well, I don't know, maybe Catherine isn't on her radar as far as a uh, rival for Ricky. Yeah, probably attention. not, yeah. But it might just be Ricky's way of saying, hey, uh, at the end of the day, you work for me, and 
<laughs> right. This is my house. And maybe that's it. Maybe this is like the one place where, you know, he's been kind of, uh, I don't know, not calling the shots in the rest of the house for the rest of the evening. And maybe he's like, well, this is one situation where I don't have to take anybody's shit and give her a face full of wadded up black stockings. Right. It's, it's the only, yeah, it's the only place where he has any sort of power. Yeah. It's been stripped in every other way. But as the movie goes on, he starts to, like, we find out a little bit more about him and he starts to second guess his own sanity. And there's, you know, there's a, a, a throwaway line about him being in an asylum um, where, I mean, and, and we're jumping ahead, but this is obviously at the point where they're trying to <clears throat> get you to decide who you think the killer is. And mm-hmm. he's a big red herring because he acts so strange. So, right. But up until this point, you know, he's got these weird looks on his faces, but you just kind of see him as, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's diminutive or just kind of, um, powerless, but, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So the girls all decide to go up to the attic where they just happen to have all of these like uh, 1920s clothing that they decide to have a great big uh, fashion show dress up party as as a way to continue on the sexy party. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is I mean, they go upstairs to get to this place, so it's kind of hard to know the actual layout of the inside of the castle and where things are, especially when it comes to this bedroom, which is in the next scene, uh, as opposed to the main living area where they're all partying, as opposed to the hallway and the other rooms and the powder room and the bathroom and um, this attic area where they have the, where they have all the, all the uh, wardrobe uh, supplies and changes and whatnot. But um, because later on in the movie, they kind of move around from one place to another and you, you don't, I get, I got a little like disoriented as to where I thought they were in the grand scheme of the layout of the place, but it doesn't really matter. Um, In this room now that the men go into, it's a four poster bed. And if you, know that the movie is called death on the four poster, or if you <laughs> forgot that the movie is called death on the four poster, um, we now, you know, know what, what they're referring to. And, and honestly, I forgot all about that. That was what it was called. Um, until I thought about it for a second, I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. And above the four poster bed, I mean, they talk about how there's mirrors in a lot of places in this room. And Lulu is very, um, kind of naive in that he doesn't understand that it's for sex and for kinky sex mirror things. <laughs> and <laughs> they, they lay on the bed together, which is odd. And they all look up and they see the mirror uh, on the ceiling. And uh, Lulu gets uh, freaked out at this point because. Um, uh, it's a prophecy. Yeah, there we go. The the Lulu notices the mirror above the bed and notes that the prophecy of seeing ourselves above ourselves has come true. And uh-huh. it's kind of like, whoa, okay. So nobody obviously thinks anything of it other, other than Lulu. 
Um, we go back upstairs to the girls trying on their sexy party clothes. Um, and then after that scene, we go back to the boys again. And I guess the boys, and this is, this is a, let me go back to this scene for a second. Cause it goes on for a little while. And the girls are talking and there's some sort of music box thing playing in the background and all the women are trying on various leg and um, nightgown. And it's a, it's a pretty, it's a, for the time it's, 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 there's a lot of skin going on in this scene. In fact, you could even see, um, Edie in the background in just bra and panties. Whereas the women in the foreground, they have a little bit more clothes on. So I think they did that on purpose. And apparently uh, Pia Maria Conte had some ballet lessons in her past. Yes. Because she's on her tippy toes through most of this. And she, yeah, she finds the ballet shoes and she's all excited and she puts them on. So uh, very kind of gratuitous scene just for eye candy right there. Nothing really happens, but um, the boys come out of the mirror room and they say, what what the hell's going on here? Where are the girls? Why are we all laying in bed together? We should be finding the girls. And uh, they all go to look and Lulu says, I'm going to go look upstairs. So he walks upstairs. He's got this kind of dopey look on his face. And as they bring him upstairs or as he comes upstairs, they see it's Lulu. They say, okay, close your eyes. We don't want you to see what's going on. They lead him in to the room where they're all dressed in all of these um, lingerie. And mm-hmm. once he opens his eyes to see them, he freaks out again because <laughs> the prophecy number two has come true. The girls uh, go back in time. What was the actual quote? Uh, let me get back to it here. The actual quote was, um, the women will change their appearances. They will go back in time. Yes. Yeah. So he is really un- unhinged now at this point. He's really freaking out. And uh, Serena says, uh, you know, come on. What's what's your problem? You're fine. Don't be a dork. Yeah. Um, I think if I was him, the prophecy might have been one of the uh, third or fourth things I thought of when I opened my eyes up there. But At least seems to be. Yeah. And the fact that he has to spell it out for me, that's kind of a mark against the film. I would have preferred it if they had just let the audience figure it out because it's not, know, it's, it's not a big secret or something that you would have to watch four times before you figure it out. I think it'd be kind of cool if he didn't mention that or underline it as much as they do. And just maybe have somebody mention it towards the end or towards the end. But him immediately like, oh, my God, this is a prophecy. Oh, there's the other prophecy. And I don't know. It wasn't subtle enough for me, I think. Yeah. Well, and part of the thing that for me makes the film a little bit difficult to get on board with is the fact that, you know, they're trying to do so many different things here. Like the real 
problem or the real mystery that's trying to be solved has absolutely nothing to do with the prophecy. And the fact that they threw this in as a plot element, you know, it just, it just kind of muddies the waters for me. But I mean, I guess, I guess they had to do something to, you know, change the, you know, the movie needed a way to change tone because up until the point where Anthony does this prophecy thing, it's been all fun and games and uh, sexy parties and dances and girls and guys and being silly. And, you know, they, they want the audience to transition into uh, a different mood because this is supposed to be a scary movie. And I guess that's why they put this in here because it's like, we're going to interrupt all the fun with this prophecy. And, you know, Anthony is so distraught by what he saw that he has to leave. And it really doesn't, they don't really need to refer back to it ever again, honestly. But I guess the callbacks to it that Lulu makes has to do with, I don't know, just continuing to make the audience not necessarily like to not necessarily throw the audience off, but to just get, give them an opportunity to consider, well, maybe something weird and psychic is going on here because you know, it, it, it turns out to be a very practical answer as far as the mystery is concerned, but we don't know that at this point. Mm -hmm. And the audience that's watching this in 1964 could very well think that, you know, there's going to be a ghost or a supernatural entity or something related to this psychic thing. Well, this is a pretty gothic type film. It takes yeah. place in a castle and it's got all the well, all the visual hallmarks of a gothic film. So maybe they were trying to lean into that a little bit as far as the audience expectations. Yeah. And they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, Anthony could have been a psychic and could have predicted all this stuff and it still ended up happening in a more jollo plot but i think maybe as a viewer the first time i saw this i knew something is going to happen right and the fact that he makes these predictions and then these things happen so immediately after him saying that i thought there's got to be like one woman and one man who are coordinating this uh, Anthony makes his prediction, but that it can't be him because he left, but maybe right. somebody else thought, Oh, see yourselves above yourselves. Okay. Oh, there's a mirror above the bed. Let's do that part. And then you take the women upstairs and put them in those old timey clothes. That'll kill the, the two parts of that part of the prophecy. And right. You know, the music, it's terrible. Well, shit, we already heard the harpsichord record. <laughs> it's not going to be hard to fill that prophecy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, as it turns out, there there are people in cahoots, so to speak. But it doesn't happen in the way that I was, my guessing was kind of reaching for, which was a pleasant surprise. Right. And I kind of expected the way Serena came in and kind of took over. I thought she would have been uh, one of the main bad 
figures or evil villain type people yeah in the film yep and concerning what's about to happen in like the next 30 seconds from where we're at watching it right now uh i thought that was pretty surprising too yeah new shit well she's just a homewrecker so as it turns out yeah well so serena makes her way into the mirror room and has this little sexy party by herself for a little while (laughs) and uh on the four poster. On the four poster, yes. And then, and if uh, you look at the Italian title, Delito allo specchio, crime in the mirror. So, I guess yeah. they both refer to the bed. So she's looking herself in the mirror on the four poster, and <laughs> and then the door opens, and uh, she gives a look like, um, I mean, obviously, you know, she's gonna know unless it's Aldo. She knows, she knows who it is. I mean, even mm-hmm. if it is Aldo, she knows Aldo too, probably. She's, but I don't know. Maybe yeah. she doesn't know Aldo. It's like it, it, I get a sense that, and a false sense that Serena has been here before, like that she knows Ricky and she's been to the castle. But then when she first comes here, she says, "I have a, I had a hard time finding this place." So she's never been here before. So she wouldn't know Aldo. If Aldo had walked she's in, she's sure she making herself have, at home. Yeah. I think she would have screamed if Aldo had come in through the door, but the door yeah. opens and we zoom in on her face and she continues to make strange expressions with her face of wonder and fear. And then some other kind of um, like host- hostile kind of a face. And that's all we see. We switch now to a scene where Lulu and I guess it's Lucianne and Nikki are coming down the steps and they hear music playing. And, (laughs) and again, (laughs) Lulu says, don't you know, it's the prophecy. It's the prophecy. Uh, I'm down in my notes here. Okay. So, uh, Oh, I have this part in my notes, which is kind of funny. Um, They hear this music, they follow it down through the hallway, down the steps to Ricky playing the piano. Now, Ricky, in the soundtrack that I had, is playing this song that is like this frantic, tense, discordant, like suspenseful theme music on the piano. Uh, It's all over the place. It doesn't seem to have a key. It's really fast. And when he finally gets to the end, Lucianne says, Ricky, that was lovely. Like she had just heard (laughs) some sort of, you know, Mozart piano sonata or something, um, which I just thought was funny because it clearly wasn't lovely at all. Um, But then some very free jazz, if it was anything. Yeah. So then all of a sudden we hear a scream and everybody runs and we find that Frankie who up until this point, I didn't even pay attention to um, has gone into the mirror room and she's found the dead Serena on the four poster staring at the mirror (laughs) and they check her pulse and she's really dead. And um, 
they find Aldo's scarf at the uh, near the body. So they immediately think that Aldo is the murderer. And I think they decide to go searching for him to find him. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point in the film, Charlie really kind of takes over and becomes kind of the leader of the group in trying to figure out who the murderer is, who did this. And they decide that they're going to go look for Aldo. And well, sorry, there is one thing I noticed when uh, they meet. Who was it? Uh, was it Frankie in the hallway after she screams? Yeah. The one person in the whole room or in the whole hallway who doesn't have a look of shock and surprise because, holy shit, what's that? Somebody just died is Katarina. Right. So that's a. Uh, yes. I'd say a red herring flag. Yes, another red herring. So, yep. Yeah. She doesn't even go into the room with the rest yeah. of them. She stands She looks outside. like she doesn't give a shit. And plus, we know she's uh, a little scorned because Ricky had to go entertain his guests, including her, or including uh, Serena. Right. So, so they're setting out the, uh, the mystery pretty well so far. I yeah. Think. I'm pretty sure it's not, you know, I... Never thought for a second that it was Aldo because he's the reddest red herring that ever herringed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he he just he looks scary. Uh, he looks mm-hmm. too guilty for his own good. Um, so I guess they, my notes say they look for Aldo, but he can't be found anywhere. So Charlie decides that he's going to take Lucianne's car and drive into town to tell the police what you know that there was a murder. <clears throat> And while Charlie is outside walking around with Aldo's scarf over by the garage, um, he, he goes over to where the key was left and there's no key anymore. And he walks back into the house, but Aldo is right behind him. And so <laughs> they come back in and lo and behold, the key is gone. And... I don't know who actually took the key. It doesn't appear in that scene that Charlie takes the key. Um, but you can't really see. You can't really tell because it's dark. I mean, if they if they explicitly showed him taking the key, then that would kind of ruin it. Well, it's dark. He reaches up there. You can't see where his hand is. He's looking is. around. You can't see his hand. Yeah. And... He brings his hand back and immediately switches which hand he's carrying the scarf in. So maybe he did swipe the key because it would make sense. Uh, yeah. I don't think I noticed that what, before. We find but I think later on... He, he wouldn't want anybody else to be able to leave. And I think later on when they dig something up, you know, because Aldo discovers that something was buried in the garden, maybe the key is part of that. Oh, yeah, maybe. But that comes on. So later. he comes in, he throws the scarf down in the, the armchair and then just kind of sits on top of it. So maybe the key is still, maybe he put the key in the scarf or maybe he just uh, 
dropped it in his pocket. Yeah, could be. Oh, okay. So they decide that now that they can't leave because they would actually need a locksmith to come out to handle this uh, problem with the missing key. Um, let's see. They decide that they're going to wait for the delivery truck to come in the morning. And once they make that decision, oh, and I think um, for some reason, Charlie finds a gun that's like laying yeah, on the table. Yeah, a little like two-shot Dillinger just laying there. <laughs> Which we've never seen before, right? I mean, we don't know. Yeah, that kind of popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. Like so, Aldo. <laughs> so now the door opens slowly and the girls scream and it's Aldo and everybody runs over to apprehend Aldo and okay, we got to find a place to put him. Um, and they lock him up in a room. Now see up to this point, I was under the impression that Aldo was mute. Did you think that way the first time you saw this? I guess so. Because he's not saying anything. He never he's says just, anything. He yeah. never said. Well, I mean, there's one place in the film where he does speak. And when that happened, I was like, oh, shit. Why didn't he say anything before? When yeah. These guys were dragging him to the, I don't know, whatever that room is. They lock him in. Yeah, because um, at this point, he... We think at this point he already knows what's going on. And why can't he just shout it out? It's that <laughs> it's that thing we always get into where somebody knows the answer to the mystery, but will not mention it until a few things happen first. Um, the good news is right. he doesn't ever get killed like most people in the Jalo films do. But <laughs> um, There is a scene later where somebody says, Aldo knows who the killer is. Well, if you know that, why didn't? You just say right, yeah, stuff. right, and let's all go and see. He's going to tell us, you know. It's like cinematic clickbait. You <laughs> <know>. <laughs> so I think um, at this point, Edie says, um, "Wait, hang on." Is this the part in the movie where Edie says that she was making out with Aldo on the balcony? Yeah, because they noticed that the the part of her dress that would cover her butt has been torn off. Oh, yeah, right. Because she, she stands up to leave and they're like, your ass is hanging out. And her being the, the ditzy, slutty type, they're like, oh, well, I, uh, you know, I played the field and all that. So I bumped into Aldo, and he uh, he dragged me out onto the terrace or out onto the balcony with him. Yeah, and, but I uh, but I didn't protest. <laughs> yeah, of course not, because none of the men at this house party have uh, expressed any interest in her at all. They haven't really. Aldo. I mean, Lulu is the only one who's still kind of unattached. Everybody else has got some sort of. Um, counterpart and uh poor uh edie she's she has to resort to the the help 
to get yeah. her rocks off. But I mean, Lulu, I mean, uh, not Lulu, Aldo is uh, quite much, much older than she is. And, you know, I guess we're supposed to just accept the fact that, you know, she was ready to go off with him and fool around with him for a little bit, even though you would never expect that she would be attracted to him because he's much older. Um, well, I don't know. There's a lot to be said for older guys, Chris. Yeah, that's no, true. <laughs> Hopefully I'll meet my Edie one day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're too old for cougars. Yeah, we're too so, old for uh, cougars. That's right. That's our that's our uh-huh. tagline. Um, so, but the important information that we get out of this is that Edie saw Serena go into the mirror room when she was mm-hmm. already with Aldo. And yeah. um, that means that Aldo can't be the killer because the, she, he has an alibi and she can right. basically say, you know, Aldo was with me. So um, at that point, um, the lights go out. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, which obviously yeah, right creates then. a little bit more tension in the movie and, Catherine walks around with her candle and uh, goes to look for a fuse to fix. And, and then at that point with the lights out, I think they continue talking about um, how do we, how do we narrow down the number of suspects? And they all start talking about where were you and who were you with? Um, can you remember what, where you were? And I think they eliminate uh, Aldo and Edie and, um, Lucianne and Nikki and Lulu so far. Um, but the rest of them kind of have, uh, they don't have airtight alibis. They have some unaccounted time uh, where no one knows where they were, or what they were doing. And again, yeah. this whole time, Charlie is the one who's leading this whole thing. He's really, you know, turned into, you know, a sleuth, uh, you know, uh, a dragnet, you know, Philip Marlowe kind of, detective right. type so and he's narrowed it down that there are five people there who cannot account for every minute of the the time period that the crime must have happened in right including himself which i thought was a nice touch yeah because even when he's saying we're well, like well what did i do well i was with so-and-so and then i was with so-and-so but there's a few minutes i couldn't account for he could have just bullshit right over that yes but and not it, probably yeah. been called on. But to make it more authentic, he groups himself in with the rest. As you know, we're leading up to the fact that you know we're we're eventually going to reveal that Charlie is um, the one who's responsible for all this. But we haven't really. I've just said it explicitly to everyone listening, but we haven't found that out yet in the <laughs> film yet. So yeah, uh, we haven't gotten there yet. So the lights That's go back right. on and Edie decides, okay, this is my time to go change back into my regular clothes, which she does. But on the way back, she stops to look at the body for some reason. And um, you don't recognize this immediately, but she, you don't know why she's doing this, but she grabs Serena's hand, or at least I didn't know why she was doing this. She grabs Serena's hand and notices that there is no jewelry on the hand and then yeah. leaves. So uh, we go back downstairs. It's much lighter now that the lights are back on. The candles aren't lit anymore. Um, 
I think right there where she goes into the room where Serena's laying dead on the bed. At first, I thought she was going in there because maybe that's where she had her suitcase or something. Yeah. But she walks in the door. She walks directly over to the body. And the very first thing she does is reach for the hand. So do you think she went in there because she was going to steal the ring? Well, it's a good question. I mean, what other reasons would she have for going in? Was it just out of morbid curiosity to see the dead body? She know. comes in, she looks at the body. The first time I thought maybe her, I don't know, maybe some piece of clothing or shawl or something that she was looking for was on the bed. And she was reaching for that. And then she noticed that the hand was um, without rings on it. But looking at it again, I realized that she had already changed her clothes. Yeah, her clothes are changed. And she walks in there and she goes straight to the body and then she reaches straight to the hand. Yeah, and the way that Serena's hand is laying where it's palm up, it wouldn't be obvious wh- whether or not she was missing any jewelry until you actually right. <laughs> inspected the other side of the hand. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess if you need to put a reason on this, the most likely one is that Edie, you know, there's no real reason for her to look at the hand just on a whim. So she went in. Well, I wouldn't have even noticed it probably. You know, if I was at a party and some woman died and I ended up back in the room for whatever reason where the body was laying, I don't think I would have, even if I'd stood there staring at her for five minutes, I don't think I would have been like, oh, yeah, didn't she have rings on? What happened to the rings? Yeah. But the way she goes straight towards it. Yeah, she does. And maybe to throw off the audience, but, you know, in, in the world of the film, maybe she had already scoped Serena out when she was <laughs> uh, dancing yeah. around and said, uh, boy, she's got some beautiful rings. And then knowing that she was dead, it was like, hey, I have an opportunity to uh, go maybe steal this ring, you know, and I can pawn it off and make some money off it. We don't really know much about Edie as far as, you know, what her financials are related, you know, how, how they stack up to everybody else. But yeah. um, next time I go to a party, I'm going to scope everybody's watches and jewelry and say, okay, if somebody drops dead. How much loot can I probably get off of them if nobody's looking? If I end up trapped in this castle overnight. Right. (laughs) So then the next thing that happens is Edie comes down and says that the rings are missing and Charlie starts to interrogate people as to let's do a personal search of everyone in the house. And it turns out that Georgie has a ring in his pocket, but, but then I think Paul confesses to it. I can't remember. I'm watching it now, but I don't remember what I wrote. No, they find the ring in Georgie's pocket. Georgie stands up. He's like, what the hell is this? I didn't put this here. And immediately Charlie's like, Paul put it there. I saw him do it. 
<laughs> oh, is that what he said? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Then what? If you saw him do it, why wouldn't you say at that point, what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) Hmm, I wonder why Paul's dropping something in Georgie's pocket. I don't know. Anyway, (laughs) la-dee-da. I'll just leave it here. (laughs) Oh, murder evidence. Oh, that reminds me. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, yeah. So this ring is, I guess, one of two that they're referring to, and they only find one. And um, Paul says he took it because he needs the money. He's in terrible debt for all of his gambling. Um, and at this point, uh, I think Nikki freaks out because somebody is playing the prophecy again on the recording. I think it's Frankie. Yeah, Frankie's playing. Yeah, it. she's like, "Oh, I'm somebody sorry." Somebody plays it back. Yeah, so uh, they take uh, they take Nikki up to a room, and I think uh, Frankie, you know, Frankie takes Nikki up to a room, and Lucianne decides to go for a walk with with Ricky, but then Ricky says, "I want to be by myself," and so at this point, you know. We already suspect Ricky because he has unaccounted time uh, when he was kind of walking by himself and then ended up at the piano and then met up with the rest of the group. Um, But at any rate, uh, let's see. So um, Nikki's sitting on this little day bed. And uh, Frankie says, uh, I'll be right back. Meanwhile, um, let's see, downstairs we have Lucianne sitting on the couch. And Paul, uh, let's see, Paul's just smoking a cigarette. And it looks like Edie is sitting at a table with Charlie. We go back to uh, Nikki, who has decided to leave the room and look for Frankie. And um, she goes over to this little bookshelf and the bookshelf starts to move and swing open. And all of a sudden, dun, 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 Ricky comes out from behind the bookcase, which is really just a front for a trap door or secret door. Um, Nikki does not reveal that she's there. She hides behind a curtain. But then when Ricky walks away, she sees a shadow in the curtain and screams again. <laughs> Actually, she goes to take Every off her sweater first. She takes off yeah. her sweater first. Then she sees the shadow, screams, runs down the hallway, back to the room with all the people in it. Um, and there's something that I noticed, and I don't know if it's, if it's relevant, but Lucy Ann is laying on the couch with her glasses off and she's holding them in her hand. And at first I'm like, I don't know who that is, but once she, she, she jumps up from the couch, she buttons up, you know, her, her jacket or what have you. And I, you don't Uh see this, but I assume that eventually she puts her glasses back on. And later yeah. on in the movie, when we get another clue, it's because Lucienne has dropped her glasses on the ground and she's um, kind of searching around. I guess she's pretty blind because she can't even find them. But that's, that comes later. 
So, uh, you know, this is just another one of these scenes where really nothing happens because Nikki um, sees the shadow and she comes running down and she tells everybody um, what happened. But she doesn't say anything about how she saw Ricky come out of the bookshelf, right? She just mentions that she saw a shadow. Um, uh, well, at some point she tells somebody. Yeah, Ricky later on. out of the wall. Yep, later on she does. I think it's Lulu. Because okay. she, she and Lulu are on the hunt. So now is when a really important scene happens. We see Ricky. Um, I don't know what room he's in. It's not the mirror four-poster room. It's a different room. Um, but he walks in and he sees Frankie uh, laying on this daybed. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to Aldo, who's spying on someone or something. Um, now, it's a real weird juxtaposition because, again, you don't know which rooms are where, and you don't know where Aldo is in that little, like, that little um, obscured glass that he's looking through and the door. Like, where is that? So the question is. Is he looking at what we just watched or is he looking at something completely different? Is he spying on Ricky who found the body? Is he spying on what happens after Ricky leaves the room or is Aldo looking at something completely different? Like we don't really know. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that either. It's kind of confusing because you don't really have a good sense of the geography of the house. Right. And he's been known to peak for, you know, no serious reason anyway. Yeah. Besides just, uh, he's always watching. So you don't know if, yeah, if, if this is the situation where he's, I mean, and everyone else is together. So it's hard to know mm-hmm. who else he might be watching. They also cut back to him again. Um, looking out the window after Ricky comes down to tell all the people that he found Frankie's body. So they all go back up, I guess, to the second floor or wherever this is. Um, and they're all searching. I thought I heard on one of the viewings somebody refer to this room as the library, but I don't see any books in there at all. No. So. And meanwhile, there's somewhere in the hallway, there's a big shelf that has books, and it may not necessarily be real books, but. And that's just the door to the secret tunnels. Right. <laughs> Gee, I wonder how we could open this, but we'll get to that. (laughs) So now the group comes and they find Ricky and Charlie leads him back into the room. And this is one of those things that we mentioned earlier where because the frame is cropped, as they lead Ricky into the room, they're trying to show him that there's nothing on the daybed anymore, that Frankie's body isn't there anymore. And... They don't do this thing where the camera actually pans over to the right. But it's clear that she's not there anymore. And if we had more of the frame, I guess we would see it. So um, Ricky kind of leans down and puts his hand down to just kind of make sure that he's not hallucinating or that the the the, the day bed is actually real. Um, but Ricky at this point is now fully, you know, transformed into, um, 
the character who can't trust his own viewing, like his own, he can't believe his own eyes at this point. Yeah. He's starting to lose it. Yeah. He's, he's like, staring. wasn't it earlier already that we heard about he was in a, a mental hospital or something? I think it happens a little bit later. A little bit later. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so Charlie kind of thinks that Ricky's crazy. They start searching the rest of the house for Frankie's body. Um, they go back to Ricky who, yeah, I think Charlie goes up to the attic to look, but like, they're just having a search party. Then all of a sudden we're back and Ricky's having some more scotch because that helps when you don't know what's real and what isn't. And, (laughs) and all of a sudden interact with any meds you might be. Right. Exactly. So he goes to take a sip of his scotch and he sees Frankie again and she's standing by a column and he, it's weird how they do this, but he approaches her and in the frame, into the front of the frame is Ricky's shape and Mm -hmm. that shape obscures Frankie's face, like his shoulder, like cuts across her face. And then, you know, he walks a little closer and now we see it's him. And then the next thing that happens is he throws the curtain back and she's gone, but she wasn't even behind the curtain. She was in front of it. That's the weird part. Well, did she, his shoulder creeps into the frame and totally obscures her standing there staring at, us or him yeah the the camera's eye right and he keeps advancing towards her filling up more and more of the frame until all we see is like uh, a couple seconds of his back right and then he steps forward he thinks she's behind the curtain so he tosses the curtain back but if you think about it she couldn't have just disappeared in front of him. That's I what mean, I'm, it's a yeah. trick they play where for us, the viewer, she's disappeared. Right. Well, what happened? But he was staring dead at her the whole right. time. So exactly. it's not like she could have just sidestepped out the door. And then he's like, wait, what? <laughs> well, that's, that's, yeah, that was my point because it was like, it it wasn't, you know, he definitely saw her. It wasn't like he thought maybe there was somebody behind the curtain. He saw her face. And now that she's out of the frame or obscured by his his shape, she disappears. And what are we to believe he saw? You know, like it's it's not, you know, did she just vanish? Like she, one, one second she was there and then the next second she disappears? Did she disintegrate in like a dissolving kind of thing? Did she turn into vapor? You know, like it's it's. It was like a little camera trick that they played, but it doesn't make any real sense to why they did it that way. Well, it, it works as a trick for us, the audience, right. because we're not sure if he's really crazy and this is putting us in his uh, perspective. Exactly. Uh, and I guess maybe if you want to dig real hard into the gothicness or whatever they call it, gothicity of this film... <laughs> Maybe she's a ghost or something. But. Isn't that a song by System of a Down, Gothicity? 
Yeah, I think it was a B side <laughs> or something. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's a Umberto Lindsay film from the eighties. <laughs> the sequel to Contamination Nightmare City. Um But what we know at the end, it's like, okay, you pulled a cool trick on the audience for a little bit thinking, oh, well, he must be crazy because he's seeing things and she's not really there. But once you know that she, again, spoiler for like the next, what's about to happen in the next 10 minutes anyway, you find out that she is alive. Right. And it was a ruse to try to drive him crazy. Right. But how could you count on being able to just walk away from in front of him and him still think that, wait, what? Right. Huh? <laughs> That's the weird part. Like. Once he got closer, she said, all right, see you later, Ricky. And she just walked away, but we didn't see any of that. What would you do if he just started screaming and lunged at her and grabbed her, you know? (laughs) And everybody's like, she's here. She's here. I got her. You know, and she's not going to break his grip and she's not going to run out the door. And even if Charlie runs in to help her, all the six other people are going to come barging in the room too. Right. So. I think if Matt were on the conversation, he would say that the producers of the film needed to orchestrate some sort of a shot where Ricky sees the dead body that is now no longer dead. And we want to make the audience think that he's going crazy and we don't have a good way of filming this. So let's just plan it so that his his shape obscures the face of the, of the woman of Frankie. And then we don't have to explain it anymore. Like a a better way of doing that would have been that, you know, she was further away. She was outside. She was in a different room. Her shape was behind a curtain and he thought it might've been her. But by the time he got to the curtain, she wasn't there. Any of those things would have been better because it would have been a trick that the audience and Ricky at the same time could believe in. But we, we know that we saw her standing there and we know that there was no way that Ricky couldn't have seen her. And then all of a sudden she's not there. So yeah, I mean, yeah, we're, we're, we're pulling this apart. And they had just put on the table secret passages and hidden doorways. Yeah. But it's his castle. Right. And yeah, Catherine knows it better than anybody. Maybe even, Ricky, the Baron slash owner of the castle himself. But they never show us later that, yeah, actually one of the the wall panels behind that curtain was a door and she jumped through it and he, he didn't know it was there to surprise him or, you know, but again, that raises more problems than it solves. Right. Well, but for a few minutes, it worked on me because I thought, oh, he is losing it because there's no way she could have just stepped away. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there is. Well, so Ricky is, um, you know, fully fledged in this um, feeling like he's going crazy. He walks back into the room where he originally saw the body and sees some jewelry laying on the the, the bed where the body was. And um, I guess this is supposed to be Frankie's jewelry of some sort, not um, Serena's jewelry because it's a different room. So we have two different um, people with jewelry issues going on. Uh, 
Catherine comes in and has sex with his hand for a little while and says, um, <laughs> I want to comfort you. I know, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but it doesn't work. Um, Ricky is not interested in Catherine right now. He's trying to figure out why he's losing his mind. So Catherine um, leaves the room. Um, for a second, she runs into Lulu and Nikki. And Nikki brings Lulu over to the bookshelf that she saw Ricky come out of. And um, Lulu in perfect, you know, Lulu uh, disposition and what you would expect from Lulu says, oh, but I don't want to go in there because what happens if it closes? And uh, she says, come on, let's go. And he hesitates long enough for the very slowly closing door to close before he can get in it uh, or get through it. I love how it's a hidden door and they they're like, oh, this case you say that it opened up and there's so this is actually a door there's got to be some way to open it there must be a button somewhere what like two inches away from it something that is clearly a button <laughs> i mean how, who designed this castle well at least put in one of those things like in young frankenstein where you <laughs> pick up the the candle or pull a book off the shelf and that triggers but no it's that button might as well have a label on it that says secret door opener secret door button (laughs) yeah well whoever put the secret door button in was the same person who hung the hook where you put the key for the garage so you know what i mean hey we'll leave this one brick out to lay the key on (laughs) you know it's three feet away from the garage door nobody will see it (laughs) (laughs) so now so now lulu he can't understand what just happened and even though there's a button to open it he doesn't want to push it again he's so distraught by the fact that uh nikki has gone through the passageway and he doesn't know what to do so he says he's going to go find whoever uh he runs away to go find help uh meanwhile uh nikki walks down the steps she's in these catacombs and she eventually comes into this little chamber where she is surprised to see aldo and she's so surprised that she faints and um, Aldo she catches thinks. her and brings her over and lays her on a cot, which looks like it's inside a jail cell. Why would there be a jail cell with a cot in the catacombs <laughs> underneath the castle? I don't in, know. In these uh, this perfectly lit catacombs. <laughs> and you say she fainted. Well, I thought the first time I saw this, okay, she sees him. It's, it's, she knows he's dead. He's around. And. You know, she knows she's in. Well, she's deciding to walk through these mysterious catacombs all by herself. Right. But the way it's shot, he comes up. She opens her mouth, starts to scream. He puts his hand over, I guess, to to block her scream or to to shush her. It seems like he's putting her to sleep with chloroform <laughs> fingers or something. Because right. As soon as he pulls his hand away, she just kind of droops like yeah. A, sack of potatoes it's like a hypno- and I was thinking, like damn, hip- hypnosis aldo has a superpower <laughs> but the other problem is that we've already established that aldo couldn't have killed anybody so she shouldn't really be afraid yeah. of him but again he's creepy looking anyway so um okay so he just laid her on the bed and i just noticed probably for the first time 
there's like a little bedpan yes. set up behind him and a little table with and a, a little candle. Yeah, on. and a little jug of water, which I would I guess you would pour into that porcelain thing to wash your hands or something. Into the wash basin. Yeah. Yeah. So is this his quarters? I, Does I this would, really make poor Aldo sleep? I was going to say, I hope not. Like, this is terrible. I mean, if, like you said, what? Why would you maintain? I mean, never mind keeping the lights on in the dungeon tunnels. <laughs> but <laughs> why would you keep a fresh bed? I mean, it's not like it's covered in dust and cobwebs and stuff. I mean, that looks like yeah, a, uh, it's being used yeah. part of the <laughs> the property. That's but where the there's real big sexy bars party right happens. there. And that's like, oh shit! Just how crazy is this party? Yeah. <laughs> Ricky might have all sorts of weird shit going on. Well, they I could do a whole series on this movie. <laughs> the the other thing that I thought of was when they were originally thought that Aldo was the killer, and they brought him somewhere to keep him from escaping. Why didn't they put him here? It's obviously a jail cell. They put him in some other room yeah. in the house. You know. Well, maybe Katarina and maybe Ricky were the only ones that knew about it. Yeah. But see, we saw Ricky come out of that bookshelf secret door. And it seems like the only place that leads to is the dungeon. Right. Or whatever these tunnel places are. So what was he doing down there? What was he doing? Right. He wasn't doing anything. He just needed to uh, He just needed to, uh, to come out of that uh, door so that we would see. Yeah, somebody was... had to come through there so we could so we would know that there put was it a on secret. the table. Right. Well, now Lulu is looking for help. He runs to find Catherine, who is uh, drying off champagne glasses, even though there's a murder. Um, (laughs) And he says, you know, there's a secret passage. And she's like, it's not really secret. Everybody knows about it. Um, And he says, but Lulu or but uh, but but Nikki went down there and I I don't know what to do. And so. Yeah, so I mean, they leave and they go to to look for um, what's going on. They went to to go down the secret passage, and we go back to the scene where Aldo is with Nikki. Um, she wakes up on the bed. He's got his hand around her throat for a second, or close to a position where he could strangle her. But then he pulls his hand down and he rips off her dress or starts to rip off her dress. And then she wakes up and then he says, I don't want to hurt you. I know who the murderer is. (laughs) I think what he was doing was he was opening her blouse so that he could check her heart rate and make sure that she wasn't in a bad way. Right. Absolutely. Apparently, uh, he skipped the day at uh, first aid school where they teach you how to check somebody's pulse on their wrist <laughs> or neck. <laughs> so uh, all above board in good faith, he was going to <laughs> lay his ear against her bosom and listen for a heartbeat. But she had to wake up and get all fanatical about it. So. But then he reassures her. He's like, oh, no, no, no. It's okay. I know who the killer is. 
So go ahead. Let me lay my head on your boob. <laughs> it's okay. Because... I'm going to check your pulse as we, you know, originally. Um, yeah. I can't. I can't let you up until you're down to 70 beats per minute or less. <laughs> uh, so then Catherine appears and uh, she basically says, leave him alone. Yeah. She cock blocks or leave again. Yeah. Yeah. Leave her alone. She goes over and that's kind of all that happens there. He doesn't say anything else. So then we cut to, yeah, but he just said, I know who the killer is, right? He said that, but I think he said it before Catherine shows up. So the only person who would have, you know, Nikki could have said, who is it? You know, exactly. So, but she's still too uh, very like, like she's really kind of out of it. Like besides the fact that she's had five or six, you know, screaming fits throughout the movie, she just <laughs> uh, woke up to being molested by the 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 innkeeper, or the you know, the groundskeeper Willie character. So, um, <laughs> so she's not in any kind of right mind to just be logical and say, okay, well, if you know who the killer is, who is it? Um, and I guess he's supposed to be a little bit slow. Right. And but uh, the good news yeah. is he's not mute and he knows who the killer he's is. He's not mute. Yes. Well, he's just not bothering to tell anybody at an appropriate time. And I think, aren't they still trying to find Frankie at this point? Like everyone's still on the hunt yeah. for Frankie because she disappeared. Yeah. Uh, Ricky thinks that. Frankie's dead because he saw her body, but then they go back and she's not there. So she must be somewhere else. And the search is still on. So, yeah, you know, she's dead. I saw her body. Oh, wait, I can't find her body. Maybe she's not dead. Well, either way, she's missing. Still we missing. Gotta find right. her. But, uh, yeah. And meantime, Ricky's losing his mind more and more. Yeah, Ricky continues to drink, and Lucianne is trying to console him. Um, it's interesting that she has taken a shine to Ricky. I think after um, Charlie showed his ass with Serena during the Shattering Illusions thing. Yeah. She kind of lost interest in him. And being a wealthy daughter of a castle owner maybe she can bond with yeah ricky more because at least he won't be after me for my money because he has a castle of his own right they they have something in common they can have a prenuptial castle agreement if they want to (laughs) (laughs) uh so then we go back and there's three people that are still downstairs uh trying to avoid getting killed it's uh paul and um, his girlfriend, whose name I forget, and uh, Edie, and they start Kitty. to play more dice. Uh, meanwhile, oh, yeah. um, we have a very pivotal scene where uh, Lucianne pours herself a little bit more scotch and sits down on the chair, but she drops her glasses, which is the thing that I was referencing before, which is she takes her glasses off at certain times. But it's clear that she can't see very much without them because 
after she drops them, she goes down on the ground to look for them, and she, like they're right in front of her, but she can't find them. <laughs> so, like right her vision there. must be so fucking bad that you know, like it, all, all she bad. sees is a great big blur. She's got to put her hands out to find the glasses. But while she's down there, she hears somebody say, um, "No one, uh, there's no one here. We can talk." Um, And it's a man and a woman. We don't see their faces. And Lucienne is, is at this point, stays on the ground on her knees, kind of eavesdropping on this conversation. They talk about how Serena was expecting a child. That was mentioned in the conversation. And then mm-hmm. they say something about, we will continue as planned and um, that we must force him to do it before dawn. And I think um, I think they're, you know, part of the plan has been now released or, or um, has been uh, exposed is the right word. Uh, part of the plan has now been exposed to us, the audience, but not all of it. We don't know who's talking. We don't know who they're talking about, but we can kind of make the assumption that they're talking about Ricky. Um, mm-hmm. And it seems as if they want to force him to, when he says force him to do it before dawn, I don't know if it was do it confess or, I don't know, excuse me, I don't remember uh, what he says there, but let me, um, let me listen to it real quick. So, okay, so it sounds like the woman that he's talking to, she believes that Ricky really is the murderer. And the person, the man, is convincing her that Ricky is the murderer. So um, the, the woman who we eventually find out is Frankie, she's going along with this plan to try to get Ricky to confess to the murder because she really does believe that he did it at least from this conversation. But uh, in reality, um, it's, it's Charlie who's got this whole thing planned out. Um, So I don't necessarily think that. And when you go back and analyze what, what was going on in the scene, it sounds to me like Frankie still doesn't know really what Charlie is up to, but she's going along with it for some reason. Um, So Charlie has somehow gotten her to believe that Ricky killed Serena, but maybe because of a lack of evidence, we need to corner him into a confession. And that's why I need your help to drive him crazy. Cause he's already a little right loose in the head. So she is believing that and agreeing to go along with it. Because that would be the only way to bring him to justice, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, okay, what I said earlier about um, when you mentioned that Frankie seemed to be the one who invited Serena to the castle. Yes. I wonder if... Maybe Charlie 
who apparently has this master plan going on. I wonder if he mentioned to Frankie, hey, it might be a good idea if you invited Sedana. Yeah, call her up. Tell her to meet us up there at the castle. Right. To kind of get the ball rolling on the whole thing. But again, I mean, that's not in, in case you're in case you're not paying close enough attention or paying close enough attention. Lucy Ann yeah. is the boyfriend or is coupled with um, Charlie, but Frankie is not. Um, Frankie gets involved helping Charlie for some reason, but it's you know if you're if you're confused about who is you know, aligned to who and, and who's helping who for what reasons. It's, it's not necessarily cut and dry because it's like, well, you know, what does Frankie have to do with any of this? Once you find out what's going on, it's like, what is, you know, why is she involved? Why is she helping? Well, if, if Charlie had been in a relationship with Serena, which he was because of his whole motivation for uh, having her removed he wouldn't have been able to call up Serena and say, hey, why don't you come up to this party? Right? Right. Because he's apparently moved on, so maybe he... Oh, fuck it, let's just go full spoiler. He might have knocked up Serena while he was supposed to be in a relationship with Lucy Ann. Right. And maybe Serena had already given him the idea that she was going to want something from him uh, as far as like support or whatever. Yeah. Well, and then the other question is, you know, were, was, was Charlie in a relationship with Serena that was public or was this just like a, a private fling that happened while he was with Lucianne and that's, <clears throat> and that's what's going to, motivate him to to do what he's doing you know um well nobody else mentions a relationship between the two of them right so i would imagine that it was uh kind of on the down low so to speak but he has to have some sort of motivation to get rid of her because she's a threat to his relationship with lucy ann Right. Uh, but he can't. And he, like, you know, at the beginning, the, the very beginning, we find out that he had to twist Ricky's arm to get invited up there for this whole thing. So I think he was setting the whole thing up from the beginning. And he was probably just friends with Frankie and said, hey, how about you, uh, invite Serena to come to the party. Yeah. Because he needs her to be in there so that he could kill her. And then uh, he probably already knew, well, he obviously already knew about Ricky's mental problems. Right. And put it all together right. like that. So I, I think what we're saying here is that um, Frankie doesn't necessarily know all of Charlie's motives, but um, it's Charlie that's kind of masterminding this whole plan to have everybody come up here and create enough of a, of a diversion so that he can um, 
do what he needs to do to Serena and then come out of it without uh, any sort of blame or, or accusation. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good plan because except for actually strangling Serena, there's no way for him to be connected to anything. Right. You know, right. If he gets to pin it off on Ricky, the crazy guy who owns a castle, uh, and then how can we get Ricky to con? Well, I think there was a comment somewhere where Ricky thought maybe it's it's coming up in the next. And I think we got ten minutes left of this movie. Yeah, there's some place where uh, Lucy Ann is reassuring ricky that you didn't kill her she is alive right so he's starting so to he's think all, yeah. it's almost starting to work right yeah the thing that they're trying to do lucianne is is kind of undoing the stuff that frankie and charlie are trying to do yeah and once you get ricky to confess the only loose thread is frankie because what if she decides that she feels guilty or what if they do uh forensic evidence which i don't know what the state of that was in 1964 <laughs> right i don't think they're swabbing cheeks for dna or anything no but um she would be the one thing hanging over uh kind of keep getting all these names and mix up no kidding she would be the one thing hanging over charlie's head what if she tells somebody you know 20 30 years down the road that oh me and charlie did this thing to ricky we had to kind of help him realize that he was the murderer yeah what that it? right so he's got to get rid of her too yeah he's got to take care of that loose end and he tries to towards the end of the film yep um but before that we go back down to the dice game and this is the scene mm. where um paul mentions that Ricky was in an asylum while they're playing dice. Right. And Oh no, I'm sorry. The a scene happens before that where uh Ricky <clears throat> comes back into the room again. He turns on the mirror. He turns on the light and in the mirror we see another vision of Frankie laying on the bed dead. Um and another mirror, you know, not the same one that was over the bed, but another mirror that would kind of tie in the the, the other title. Uh, right. What was the title? Death in the Mirror or Crime in the Mirror? Crime in the Mirror. Crime in the Mirror. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he has this weird reaction to seeing her in the mirror. Um, it's not f- like fright, but it's more like... I'm still not sure if what I'm seeing is real. He's got his tie off and he's heading over to her body with his tie. Like he's about to strangle. He's going to strangle her, even yeah. though maybe she's already dead. But I'm also I'm going to make sure you're dead now. I, I just wonder if really what he's doing here is. I mean, obviously, you know, he's in a position where it looks very much like he's about to strangle her. But it also looks like he might be just trying to see if she's really there or if she's just an illusion. But um, we cut back to the the group down in the main area. And I think this is where Paul says something about Ricky being in the asylum. <clears throat> and then uh, as they continue to talk about dice games and stuff, all of a sudden, Catherine comes running in and she says... Um, 
everyone come quick. Aldo knows who the killer is. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't told Which anyone yet. Which is our yet. clickbait for this film. Yeah. He, he, he won't tell anyone. We all He wants to tell everyone at once so he doesn't have to repeat Gosh. himself. So everyone come. <laughs> <laughs> well, <what? laughs> okay. So they, uh, so I guess the, the plan is that all the people are going to gather up and go talk to Aldo. Uh, meanwhile, we go back and Ricky is once again moving around very slowly, sloth-like. He's got his... Um, tie in his hand. And, you know, one of the things that we're, you know, possibly hinted at is that maybe he strangled Frankie because um, he, he he still has his tie in his hand and he puts it down. Um, but they don't really do anything with that. And again, it's kind of like, okay, either she's dead for real or she's dead, but it's just a hallucination. But either way, there's no need to strangle her a second time. Um, so it's it's kind of silly if that's what they were implying by him holding the tie like that. But um, yeah, I kind of wonder if that one was a hallucination because it doesn't. There's no uh, end of that thread. Yeah, we don't see. Right? He walks over there with his uh, bolo tie or whatever you call it in strangle mode yeah. between his hands, and we cut away to downstairs. We come back. He's kind of washing his hands and picking up the straight razor. And, but then later we see that Frankie is fine. So right. what, what happened? What happened? Right. Yeah. Well, it's the same what the hell happened when she was standing next to the curtain. It just kind of ended. Maybe that was a hallucination now that I think about it. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of. You know, it's never resolved, but, you know, it could be just the ambiguity of what's really happening versus what's going on with Ricky. And yeah, so it's this funny point, how sometimes in a movie I love the ambiguity and other times it pisses. me. Yeah, yeah, it depends. <laughs> right. If it works, it's if it works for the movie, then it's fun. But so, I mean, at this point, if you're watching this movie for the first time, it's possible that you still believe Ricky is the killer. And now that he has either. Uh, convinced himself that he's the killer or actually killed both people, he's now going to kill himself because he can't handle it anymore. Meanwhile, uh, Catherine and the others are going to talk to Aldo about who the killer is, but it could be Ricky and he's going to, you know, that's what, that's what Aldo's going to say, but we don't know yet. So Lucianne comes in and she's like, um, what are you doing? He's like, I, you know, I did it. I did it. And he's like, no, you didn't do anything. Aldo knows who the killer is. And she bandages up his wrist. And um, they go. She, she basically tries to calm him down. But before anything else happens, we cut to like this pivotal scene that is kind of the ending scene where Frankie is now walking up the steps to this area in the attic where they <clears throat> were all trying on the clothes and stuff. And uh, Charlie is there. And at first he says something about. Um, something about Ricky. Um, she still thinks that Ricky killed Serena. I mean, obviously, uh, Frankie isn't one of the people who went with Catherine and the rest to talk to Aldo. So she doesn't know what's really happening. She still thinks that Charlie is telling the truth and Charlie knows what's going on. 
and they're in cahoots together for that reason. Um, but it all changes very quickly because, and help me along with this because I don't remember exactly what Charlie says, but something about the fact that, um, he purposely set it up to make people think that Ricky killed Frankie so that when he actually kills her now, he won't get blamed for it because everybody will have already thought that she was dead by Ricky's hands. And all of a sudden Frankie is like, I don't understand what you're talking about. And Charlie says, um, that he killed Serena um, because he was the father of her baby and he didn't want Lucianne to find out because um, she has so much money and he would have lost out on all that money. Um, So now he's about to kill Frankie. He's going to strangle her. It looks like, Um, but um, the crazy weirdo alien dude who is now the hero uh, comes up the steps and interrupts the situation. He apprehends Charlie, who doesn't seem to really um, put up too much of a fight, but they do get into a struggle. Uh, it wasn't enough for me to call it a chase scene on the Jalo score, but um, at any rate, uh, Charlie comes running down the steps. He throws a curtain into Ricky's <laughs> face, and then they have this kind of battle royale in the middle of the hallway where everyone's tackling <laughs> everyone else. And uh, Aldo comes in from the window. How did he get out there? I thought they were just talking to him. Um, and then Charlie well, runs. Somebody else was out there with them, I think. Oh, was, was it? it Catherine out there too? All right, let's see. Yeah, Catherine comes comes in through that door, and so does Aldo. Yeah, Catherine opens it, comes in, and then Aldo comes behind her. Yep. So they were making out on the balcony. Maybe. Aldo gets around. Dude, this is the sexiest part of the whole movie. It's quite a party. Everybody's just going for it. <laughs> so, Char- <laughs> so Charlie locks himself in this bedroom, and they're trying to break in, and uh, Ricky says, no, I have another key. I'm going to go get it. Don't worry. And um, while they're waiting for that to happen, they hear gunshots. Uh-huh. And um, everyone uh, kind of realizes you know, what had happened, but instead of immediately going into the room to see what had happened, uh, Catherine produces the thing that she found in the yard. And it looks like if you look in there, that not only is there a ring, but there's a, there's the key. Cause, because yeah, he picks up Ricky the ring. Ricky there's picks, still something. Yeah, in Ricky the picks up the ring and the handkerchief has the key in it. So yeah. as it turns out, there was a ring that Charlie gave to Serena that said um, to, to Serena, oh, my love, Charlie. And after he killed Serena, he took that off of her finger and buried it in the garden along with the key so that they couldn't leave uh, the, 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 the castle because all of their cars are locked in there. So um, the other piece of jewelry... <clears throat> That was on Serena's finger was taken off by Paul, but I don't know when he went in there to take it. The, the, they don't show it. 
When so when did that happen? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. But he was the first suspect I thought of when the rings disappeared. Yeah. Because obviously you're going to think, oh, the gambler guy, he's going to be in debt to some mob guy who's going to break his knees if he doesn't have the money, you know. But uh, that tied up. Yeah. So in the last scene, they have finally unlocked the door. Um, and we have this rotating pan of the camera around both of the dead people on the the four poster bed looking up into the into the mirror, mirror where Charlie looks very much alive and Serena looks <laughs> like she's just having a nap but not a drop of blood anywhere yeah where did he shoot himself yeah and the Dillinger is laying on the pillow right that uh just to yeah, remind yeah, you okay. that he had that in his pocket the whole time Right. But yeah, there's no blood, there's no gunshot wound, but meanwhile, he's dead with his eyes open, even though you can see his jaw move and his eyes blink a couple of times if you look close enough. Um <laughs> So, you know, obviously very symbolic that they, you know, they were lovers. Um they died on the, you know, their both of their bodies are laying on the same bed. Um the same bed where uh, Selena was killed. The the camera pans up and we go past uh, and shuffle through all of the rest of the characters. Everybody looking grim, um, but the coupling is weird. Uh, Edie turns to Paul for comfort. Lucianne turns to Ricky for comfort. Um, <clears throat> uh, what's her name? The woman with the woman with Georgie. With the with the the jumpsuit, <laughs> I can't remember. Kitty, Kitty, Kitty is with Georgie, and uh, yeah. Lulu is now comforting Nikki, and then finally off on the left, all by herself, is poor Catherine, who. <clears throat> well, Frankie's by herself too. On the other end, her and Aldo are kind of standing there, separated. Everybody else is paired up. Except oh, where's Catherine. Frankie? Oh, yeah, yeah. I see her and Alda right on the other side of the... Yeah, that's right. So, so in the last uh, effort to um, do her duties as the caretaker of the house, Catherine moves over to the window, opens the frame, <laughs> opens the shades, opens the shutters, whatever, and we pan out to the sun rising over the landscape <clears throat> and that is it ladies and gentlemen the movie is over so as it turns out it was charlie all along and uh again what like we've said a few times already in in kind of building up to this ending revelation uh it's clear that uh, charlie was the mastermind behind all this he had um, some people in on it, n not everybody, um, but he really wasn't um, forthcoming with all of the information to anyone. Um, the only person who really knew what was going on was Selena, who, again, we don't really know what she whispered to him in his ear during that little party game, but it was clearly related to that um, that thing that she had on him. 
Mm-hmm. So that's the end. And uh, as far as the Jalo score is concerned, just to wrap it up, um, I'm pulling up the uh, film right now. I went and looked at this because I I scored it a while ago, um, back in December 2021. And there are a few more points that it can get. Right now it has a 55, which is pretty good for... Uh, a film from long, from this long ago. If you, by comparison, look at Blood and Black Lace. Blood and Black Lace has a sixty-four. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a few more of the signatures, but um, I'm going to add a few more points to the signatures because there were a few more um, that I came up with as signatures in the criteria section. Bef- you know, after I scored this. So, um, okay. And you can let me know if I'm wrong on any of these, um, besides the word death is in the title, there's a J and B bottle. There's an odd clue and typically odd clue basically means like a piece of jewelry or, um, a piece of art or something like that. Um, so a point for that. And then a point for, um, so what are you counting as the odd clue? The ring that, Says Charlie loves yeah. Serena. Yes. Okay. Because and it's really not used as the odd clue is usually used in Jalo films where they find something and they're using it to solve the murder. In this particular case, that clue was something that was missing from the body that eventually turns up at the end. But I still gave it the point. So. Yeah. Um, and then it gets a point for glamour. Uh, artfulness, modeling, that sort of thing, because of all the women and all the outfits. So to add, and uh, Ricky yeah, was a painter too. Oh yeah, all those weird kind of modern art. That's uh, Ricky stuff. Canvases that you see hanging on the walls. Yeah, that's all his stuff. Oh okay, I yeah, that's gather. right. And plus, he can play the piano, so he's he's a Renaissance man. Sure, I guess <clears> he can. <laughs> <laughs> so, in addition to those three points, let's see here. Um, I'm going to say there's a there's a point for gaslighting. One of the characters in the film is purposely causing another to second guess their memories or grip on reality. Oh, right. So let's yeah. give him that. That's another point. Um, we can't give it the point for hippies dancing, even though the sexy dance or sexy party scene happens because they're not hippies. Um, there wasn't such a thing as hippies, I don't think, in 64. Um and they're really not at a night. That was the same year the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan for the first time. Yeah. So. Okay. And they're not in a nightclub. They're in somebody's house. So um, yeah. a point for peeping Tom, which is clearly happening Check. with Aldo. So that's two points. Yeah. Um, I think that's it, though. Let's see. There's no priest. Um. There's no psychologist. There's no rooftop. There's no spiral stairs that I saw. Um, all right. So instead of a 55, it gets a 57, which I think is uh, a pretty a pretty good score, considering you know how young how you know how early in the um, the filmography in the genre this comes. If you had if you had had this same movie. <clears throat> 
with um let's see if the if the movie came out between 70 and 75 it would get another 5 points which is a 62 score if the director had done more than one film in this genre it would be another 5 points which is a 67 and if there was some nudity um that would have put it to a 70 three more points so uh yeah so i mean again it's it's uh what i wrote on the website was that you know this is not necessarily uh a must see giallo but um depending on how much you want to get into you know the historical aspects of this film this type of film and 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 its history and how it evolved through through the years this is you know a good example of you know an early attempt at doing this so yeah i'd say it's a pretty good flick uh like you said as a jollo it's not exactly up to expectations but it did you know more than 50 percent and that's pretty good for one that came out what the month before blood and black lace yeah Exactly. We figured. Yep. And there was enough. Um, there were enough of my expectations that were kind of sidelined along the way uh, to keep me interested. I thought it at first I thought it might turn into like 10 Little Indians by Agatha Christie where one by one they get picked off. Right. Until. Uh, so that didn't happen and it didn't really get into the whole sexy part of the party but i guess my expectations for that were based on later films so that might have not been possible in 64 yeah even in europe uh, the motivation behind the killing i did not see coming at all but like I said earlier, watching through the second time, you can kind of see where that was, uh, the framework for that was laid out so that it would make sense when it happened. And always appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, the music was interesting, not exactly my favorite. I'm not going to run out and try to find the soundtrack to this. Yeah, it's not, but, it's not really memorable, uh, but. Yeah, but for a lot of stuff from the 60s, the, the music they put in there, especially when it's dealing with young people, and maybe it's because it is like right before the hippie thing started. But uh, like a lot of the music from the club scenes in Murder by Music bugged the shit out of me. <laughs> and it's not like that. I think I, I do listen to a lot of music and bands from that time period. Yeah. But when it gets translated into a movie where this is like some movie music composer's idea of what those kooky kids are listening yeah. to today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like that episode of Gilligan's Island where the mosquitoes show up and they're supposed to be like the stand-in for the Beatles. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, and they start playing that shit song and they got the... It's like they went to some Halloween store and bought the hippie costume. <laughs> and it's... That, that stuff annoys me. I don't think I would have ever remembered that at all for the rest of my life, that Gilligan's Island thing, if you hadn't <laughs> mentioned it. But, you know, uh, what's interesting is if you 
check out some of the later Jalo films in the mid seventies or the early seventies, actually. And you look at mm-hmm. some of the stuff that <clears throat> Ennio Morcone or Bruno Nicolai composed for these films. There are a couple of them where there's a kind of disco, you know, dancing party music that was written specifically for the movie. Um, the one I'm yeah. thinking of off the top of my head is um, the one that Morricone did for um, Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion when they're at the club. And I always liked that little vignette. Um, but yeah, like you said, it is very much, you know, an attempt by the soundtrack producer or the soundtrack composer to add some, you know, kind of like a, a snapshot of what's modern and what the kids are doing these days. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it may have been more effective in, you know, 71 or 72 when, you know, the counterculture and the regular kind of standard culture kind of started to blend a little bit. And people who were considered square in 67 through 69, by the time we got to 70, 71, 72, they weren't as square as they used to be because they started to adopt some of these, um, styles and, and, you know, artistic preferences. So like, you know, Morcone or, or Nicolai um, put, you know, a, a small musical vignette in their soundtrack. That's like for a dance scene. <clears throat> and, you know, those, those are ones that I typically enjoy listening to. Um, but, you know, some of the ones that are in the older ones, the ones from the, from you know, 68 and 69, they are a little bit more cheesy. That's for sure. But yeah, but, um, yeah. So that is murder. Uh, I'm sorry. I was gonna say murder by music. That is death on the four poster. Uh, Oh, everybody. One thing I forgot. Yeah. One thing I forgot. I found a review from 1966 in an Italian magazine called uh, Cinema Reports. Okay. That uh, I thought might be a little interesting, considering it's more or less contemporary to a couple years after the film came out. But this, uh, this reviewer says, The structural inconsistency and the obscurity of the narration make the personalities described completely absurd and the attempts to investigate the problems of youth even laughable. <laughs> so, I didn't realize this film was investigating the problems of youth, but uh, I guess if you consider getting laid and rolling dice and drinking champagne, problems of the youth in the mid-60s, then uh, <laughs> well, this might have been like a... <laughs> Some kind of a after-school special. It's only <laughs> a problem people. if you aren't able to uh, drink and have sex. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's interesting. So yeah, um, you know, I, I've definitely seen it enough times in for for one go around of this crazy life of ours, but um, it's good. I liked it. Yeah, I could probably watch it again at some point in the future, but uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I like. Well, and you know, the other thing is when I was watching it, I'm going, this really is kind of a simple movie. There's no way that 
you know, we're going to fill up three hours worth of time talking about it. And then, <laughs> boy, was I wrong. Yeah, we'd have to find something like a uh, a half hour episode of some Italian TV show from the 70s. <laughs> That's and the only way to keep it under two hours. <laughs> yeah, to get it. Yeah, I was about to say, get a, maybe a two hour podcast. <laughs> That is that, ladies and gentlemen. And um, so for next time, what I have on my list is a film called The Embalmer from 1965. Uh, This is also known as The Monster of Venice. And let's see, about a year later than the movie we just covered and... uh, it is also in black and white. I believe it this does not have an English uh, language track. And um, there are definitely uh, more uh, nicer looking copies of it to be watched on YouTube, I think, than this previous movie that we just watched. So, um, but it uh, it does feature a really cool villain who's dressed up like a skeleton Grim Reaper kind of thing. So it's very, very Gothic influenced and it takes place in Venice. So um, that should be fun. Just want to remind everybody that uh, this is the Jalo Chow Chow podcast, which has a sister Facebook page called the Jalo Chow Chow podcast. And we also have a email address called Jalo Chow Chow at gmail.com where you can um, write us and send us um, your criticisms, your accolades, your suggestions, <clears throat> your death threats. And um, also please go to the That's my website where we take Jalo films and rank them and put them in, give them point values for various tropes and uh, keep a running list of who has the highest and lowest scores. And our good buddy, Matt Wall, I always give him a plug at IHateMattWall.com. Haven't heard from him in a while, so hopefully we'll see what he's up to in the next couple of months or so. And uh, let's see, I guess that's about it. As we typically have been doing uh, since the, the 2023 year has turned around, recording these halfway through the month, and I try to get them out at the end of the month. So... If you're listening to this now, it's probably the end of March or the very beginning of April. And um, so you can expect that episode 93 would come out in May and all the way down the line until we get to 100, which is tentatively scheduled for November of this year. So I know it seems like a long way away, but we will be there before you know it. So that's it everybody and uh so that's all i have to say and until next time i'd love to say to all of you ciao 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 ciao